For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 10th of March, 2015. It's about eight minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. And I don't know what they call it. I know the time just changed. I don't know if it's daylight savings or, you know, standard time or whatever it is. It's uh, It's about nine minutes after eight now. So... If that all works out wherever you are, given whatever time zone you're in, we are live. And in being live, that means you can participate. You can go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And there, you can uh, participate in the show by going to the chat room. Find the chat link, click on it, follow the instructions, and head on in there. Anyway, you can also call in 855-566-3738. Anyway, let's get to some stuff. Okay, let's see here. Okay, well, we got a bunch of things on this. You know, I don't know about you, but I... I had to use it on this one computer, this uh, Chrome. I really don't like this browser, i got to say. But uh, anyway, so we'll just have to wait for it a little bit. Maybe we can uh, do this one here. This is a nice little story that ought to get your blood pumping to get started. I mean, look, I... I smoked cigarettes for 10 years, and then I quit. And that was a long time ago, and I'm glad I did. I mean, gosh, when I quit, cigarettes were something like a dollar ten a pack. Uh, now, when I see the price at the store, I'm, 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 here's a word, flabbergasted, because it's just amazingly expensive. You know, so I think, you know, at this point, I think it's a nasty, ugly habit that I don't know why I, I, why I ever did. But nevertheless, you know, you're, and, and you know, I, I prefer people don't smoke in a restaurant that I'm in. I like that, you know. Um, but then again, it goes too far. You know, they get these bans on bars. Now, I realize a bar is a public place and all that, but there's some places that smoking is, you know, you're just going to have, look, if you don't like smoking, don't go on a bar. Or, hey, at least you could have bars that, you know, okay, some bars don't allow smoking, some do. You should give them the option. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is, like always, 
people think, well, you know, it's about your health, it's about the children, it's about whatever. Well, yeah, okay. But any time you let the government start regulating things, they always go too far. And here is an example of that. In Washington, this is, uh, oh, I believe D.C. it is. It's Washington, D.C., not Washington State. A temporary order by a superior court judge is keeping a man from smoking inside his home in the District of Columbia. Oh, yeah. WJLA-TV reports that Edwin Gray's next-door neighbors in northeast Washington have filed a civil suit claiming they're being harmed by smoke that sneaks into their home through a hole in the basement. They are seeking an injunction and $500,000 in damages. A judge issued a temporary injunction last week, saying neither Gray nor any family or guests may smoke in the home the family has owned for 50 years. Now, I'm thinking that their neighbors probably have not lived there for 50 years. So some jackass moves next door, doesn't like you smoking, and sues you. You know, that's like moving next to an airport and deciding you don't like airplanes and suing the airport and saying, hey, you got to get these airplanes out of here uh, because, you know, I'm here now and I don't like airplanes. Yes, I know I moved next door to an airport, but I don't care. I think the fumes from those airplanes are damaging me, and I don't like airplanes anyway. So get them out of here. Close down the airport. Too bad for you. I wonder how that would work. Because, you know, that is the same exact theory here. And I would suspect that those fumes from those jets burning diesel fuel and dropping benzene all over you is probably more harmful than smelling cigarette smoke from some next-door neighbor. Gray's sister, Mozella Johnson, says they will fight. In court filings and a statement, the neighbors say they tried to work with Johnson and Gray and filed suit when mediation attempts failed. Wow. Wow. See, this is a case where things have gone too far. Four one. Wait a minute. You're talking about somebody's house. So you're smoking in your house, and because there's a hole in a basement somewhere, you can smell cigarette smoke. You're being harmed to the point of half a million dollars. Are you kidding me? Plus, you know, did you really? Did you did did you move next door to these people? Maybe sue your real estate agent because maybe your real estate agent didn't tell you. Oh, by the way, your neighbors smoke. See, this isn't to to work anything out. This is punitive. Anyway. Hey, here's some kind of good news. At least I think it is. 
American drone operators are quitting in record numbers. The U.S. drone war across much of the greater Middle East and parts of Africa is in crisis, and not because civilians are dying or the target list for what that war on the right to wage is just about anywhere on the planet are in question in Washington. No, something far more basic is at stake. Drone pilots are quitting in record numbers. There are a, there are roughly a thousand such drone pilots, known in the trade as 18Xs, working for the U.S. Air Force today. Another 180 pilots graduate annually from a training program that takes about a year to complete at Holloman and Randolph Air Force bases in, respectively, New Mexico and Texas. As it happens, in those same 12 months, about 240 trained pilots quit and the Air Force is at a loss to explain the phenomenon. The better-known U.S. Central Intelligence Agency drone assassination program is also flown by Air Force pilots loaned out for the covert missions. Maybe, I don't know, maybe these guys are getting some sort of conscience, you know, realizing they're sitting in an easy chair, flying around a thing that kills people, and then going home for a nice dinner with the wife. Hmm? On January 4, 2015, the Daily Beast revealed an undated internal memo to Air Force Chief of Staff Mark Welsh from General Herbert Hawk Carlisle stating that pilot outflow increases will damage the readiness and combat capability of the MQ-1-9 Predator and Reaper Enterprise for years to come and added that he was extremely concerned. Folks, you see, now this speaks to a bigger thing. Remember that old question? Hey, what would happen if they had a war and nobody went? Yep, 11 days later, the issue got top billing at a special high-level briefing at the State of the Air Force. Secretary of the Air Force, Deborah Lee James, joined Welsh to address the matter. This is a force that is under significant stress, significant stress for what is the unrelenting pace of operation, she told the media. Yes, boy, that easy chair, man, you know, you get you get tired of sitting in that easy chair killing people all day long. You know, that's very stressful. In theory, drone pilots have a cushy life. Unlike soldiers on duty in war zones, they can continue to live with their families here in the United States. No muddy foxholes or sandstorm-swept desert barracks under threat of enemy attack for them. Instead, these new techno-warriors commute to work like any office employees. Yeah, except most office employees don't spend their day killing people. Um, and sit in front of computer screens wielding joysticks, playing what most people would consider a glorified video game. Uh, yeah, all except for the dead bodies at the other end. There is that, remember? So good. Maybe, maybe, maybe they are getting a conscience, huh? Well, now, many of you this doesn't apply to, but it says you won't believe how police officers are now forced to use you as a cash cow. Well, I think most of the AVR listeners would believe it, and they already know that, you know. But, you know, this this news, see, this 
is news. Now, look, I'm giving you I'm giving you clues here because, really, I, I've got to bring this up and point this out again. Part of my purpose here is to, yeah, give you information so you'll know, but also to encourage you, okay, and to give you enough information to feel confident to talk to other people in where you live, around you, okay? People that don't necessarily listen to American Voice Radio. People in your sphere of influence. You know, and some of you might think, eh, I don't have anybody in my sphere of influence. That's not true. You know, do you go shopping? Do you ever talk to the checkout clerk? Do you ever talk to anybody at the store? Do you ever talk to strangers? Do you ever have any friends? You got any family? Got anybody? You know, anybody? I'm sure you do. Everybody does. I mean, even when I was homeless, I talked to people. And you don't have to know them. You always, you know, that people strike up conversations all the time. So when you do you can start telling them things. Start planting seeds, folks. You don't have to blow it all down their windpipe right right all at once. Okay, get ready. I'm going to give you the whole truth of the whole nasty matter. You don't have to do that. Just start planting seeds. And when you're planting seeds that are already, you know, now they're becoming, okay, maybe you knew this. You knew this probably years ago, but now it's becoming headlines. Yeah. As more and more offices across the country expose quota systems within their departments, the mission of the American police officer is becoming quite clear. Revenue generator. You see, listen, listen to this. More and more officers across the country expose quota systems. See, even the officers are starting... People, okay, not all of them, not even a majority of them, but some of them are getting a conscience, okay? As there is no money in solving murders or preventing rapes, police departments in America have focused their duties on traffic citations and the drug war. Both of these venues are highly profitable for departments. City and state governments have become so addicted to these revenue streams that we are now seeing full-on military raids on people in fruitless attempts to find drugs and money. Uh, just like the other day, we uh, Melissa brought up the Wednesday on this story about uh, the cops shot and killed a guy in his underwear while his friends watched because they were there to serve a warrant for drugs. Well, all they found was a little bit of marijuana. They didn't find any other drugs. They found $3,000 and a little marijuana. Ooh, a big wheel. But he's dead now. See? And I bet the cops kept that $3,000. Anyway. Along with the drug raids, we are seeing police officers forced to collect a certain amount of revenue through traffic enforcement or risk losing their jobs. 
Over the weekend, four more state troopers from Tennessee exposed their department for enforcing a quota system. Now, when they say to expose their department, this is the state police. This means all throughout Tennessee. There would be many more, according to the troopers, but their fellow cops are afraid to speak up for fear of retaliation. Last week, six cops in Whittier, California, filed a lawsuit against the city after they were retaliated against for refusing to act as revenue collectors by following ticket and arrest quotas. Last month, a former Bellefontaine neighbors cop, 10-year veteran of the force, Officer Joe St. Clair, was ordered to carry out a policy that he says required cops to issue a certain number of traffic tickets and even traffic arrests. That's right. And if cops failed to do this, they could lose their jobs. Now, you see, we can say what we want about cops, but, you know, most people out there really can't afford to lose their job. Cops are no different. Sure, they make, you know, they make a pretty good wage. But they can't afford to just lose their job any more than you do. You know, you know. So when they're told you got to do this or you're going to lose your job, you really got to hand it to these cops to do stand up. You know, and say something because they're under the same threat. But they're doing it anyway. So bravo for them. You know, but the thing is, what's it going to change? Are these few cops going to make a difference? No, not by themselves, not unless you listen to them. You tell your friends to, hey, man, you know, we need to we need to say something about this. We need to start telling our local whoever, city council, county commissioners, whoever. Anyway, he goes on to say, I believe the chief put an illegal mandate on his officers. I think it's unfair to be the, uh, I think it's unfair to the community. Well, of course it is. Also in November last year, the Free Thought Project reported the story of police in Normal, Illinois. Several cops from the Normal Police Department sued the city, claiming that the department's policy forced them to make arrests without probable cause. These are just a few of the many revenue-collecting schemes implemented in this land of the free. Only when these department heads are caught in the act of implementing quotas do they deny their existence. Yeah. Oh, that does. That's not a real. That's not a quota. It looks like a quota. Sounds like a quota, but it's not. Not a quota. It's something else. Earlier this month, the Free Thought Project was leaked video that shows a. Nuego County Sheriff's Department deputy admitting that their department breaks federal and state laws. This, this cop admitted on camera that he routinely breaks federal and state law. He wasn't blowing the whistle either. He was proposing a grant allocation to the Board of Commissioners and using the fact that he enforces quotas as a sales pitch. You see, folks, When your county commissioners tell you they don't know anything about this, they're lying, which you should know that because they're politicians. 
when local news departments caught wind of our story, they interviewed the sheriff, who predictably denied the existence of quotas and assured the public that the deputy in the video was faced, well, has faced proper disciplinary action. How dare you get out there and blow the whistle on what we're doing here? Yeah, he be, he's punished, all right. However, if that deputy wasn't immediately fired and arrested for breaking the law, then there was nothing proper about it. The skewed reality here is that you can mandate that officers enforce illegal ticket quotas and nothing happens to you. Only when officers refuse to take part in these illegal quota systems do they become the ones who face any discipline. In America, police can murder unarmed people while being videotaped and face little to no consequences. However, if they point out corruption within their departments, they not only face being fired, but their lives are threatened too. Does this sound like a mob? Mandating that officers issue citations and make arrests is nothing close to protecting and serving. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Requiring a minimum number of citations forces conflict and potentially hostile interactions. It truly forces police officers, police officers to create criminals out of otherwise innocent people in order to generate revenue or face, lose their, or face losing their jobs. Despite police departments across the country denying the existence of quota systems, the Free Thought Project continues to expose them. You know, they give you the, if you're a police officer and you're doing this, you know, hey, here's their email, let them know. So, folks, this is just, you know, this is not news, but this is something, you know, okay, maybe you don't want, maybe you're not ready to talk to strangers at the store about the impending economic collapse. Maybe that's just a little too much for them to handle. Maybe it's a little too much for you to handle to explain the whole thing. You know, or the imminent collapse of Western civilization. Same thing. Might be a little too much. So why not start with something a little less? Like, hey, what about police quotas? You know what? It's very damaging. It's very damaging to people. And it could, hey, and you could be one of those people. Anyhow. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a bit. Hey, man. Yep, 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 yep. Here she comes. Yep, 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 yep. Street Rock and Mom. Hello, baby. Down the street. Hit him high heels, hit him in the sidewalk. Bobbing at you and go.
they've got a website and everything though, so they're not that obscure. And then the second song, obviously he said it about a million times, so uh I you know, the name of the song is I Ain't Mad at You. And that is by H. Bomb Ferguson. Now H. Bomb is no longer performing because he died in two thousand and six. But, you know, he's a um big time oh uh, what would you call him a blues uh, rock you know rock and roll blues singer anyway you have it and no the room didn't guess it let's get to the news again just got done with cop uh Quotas, and somebody in the room said that their father was a police officer uh, till the 80s or something, that quotas are not new, and that's true. Quotas are not new. People know about it. People have heard about it. They may not think about it much. It's up to you to remind them. Strike up a conversation. Because you know what? If you talk to somebody, a stranger, and say, hey, blah, 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 yeah, darn, you know, these you know, these quotas out here, these cops got, you know, they're just revenue, whatever. However you get it going, and you've got somebody who says, yeah, I know. See, now you know, hey, this this person might be open to more information. Now, on the other hand, you talk to somebody and you say something like that, and they, and they go, yeah, but they're police, and whatever they do is good as long as they keep us safe. You might know that that might be somebody you want to, like, run away from and not say anything. Well, nothing nice anyway, and, uh, you know, leave it at that. See? Because, folks, you we all got to do something, okay? We all got to do something here. We've got to engage people. They have to have the opportunity. Somebody, you know, hey, at least somewhere down the line, you can say that, well, look, I tried to warn people. I tried to tell people. They didn't listen. Well, okay, they didn't listen, so whatever happens to them is on them. It's not on you. But, you know, if you walk by people and you know things that could help them and you don't tell them and something bad happens to them, don't you have some responsibility in that? Well, the Bible says you do. Anyway, let's see here. Oh, God, this is a horrible story. <laughs> this is about uh, DNA collection. Well, you know, uh, a lot of you out there, and again, this this might not be something you want to start a conversation with a stranger about because it might be just too much. Because everybody figures, well, yeah, that's them, those uh, criminals. They're taking their DNA and putting it in a DNA database, and that's good because they're criminals, and that's fine. But that's not all they're doing. They're doing something called collecting shedded DNA. Uh-huh. But I'll just read this article because it says it all. Every dystopian 
sci-fi film we've ever seen is suddenly converging into this present moment in a dangerous trifecta between science, technology, and a government that wants to be all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful. By tapping into your phone lines and your cell phone communications, the government knows what you say. By uploading all your emails, opening your, except Hillary Clinton's, opening your mail, and reading your Fed book posts and text messages, the government knows what you write. By monitoring your movements with the use of license plate readers, surveillance cameras, and other tracking devices, the government knows where you go. By churning through all the detritus uh, of your life, what you read, where you go, what you say, the government can predict what you will do. By mapping the synapses in your brain, scientists, in turn, the government, will soon know what you remember. And by accessing your DNA, the government will soon know everything else about you that they don't already know. Your family chart, your ancestry, what you look like, your health history, your inclination to follow orders or chart your own course etc. Of course, none of these technologies are foolproof, nor are they immune from tampering, hacking, or user bias. Nevertheless, they have become a convenient tool in the hands of government agents to render null and void the Constitution's requirements of privacy and its prohibitions against unreasonable searches and seizures. Consequently, no longer are we innocent until proven guilty. In the face of DNA evidence that places us at the scene of a crime, behavior-sensing technology that interprets our body temperature and facial tics as suspicious, and government surveillance devices that cross-check our biometric license plates and DNA against a growing database of unsolved crimes and potential criminals. The government's questionable acquisition and use of DNA to identify individuals and solve crimes has come under particular scrutiny in recent years. Until recently, the government was required to at least observe some basic restrictions on when, where, and how it could access someone's DNA. That has all been turned on its head by various U.S. Supreme Court rulings, including the recent decision to let stand the Maryland Court of Appeals ruling in Raynor versus Maryland, which essentially determined that individuals do not have a right to privacy when it comes to their DNA. Oh, really? Although Glenn Raynor, a suspected rapist, willingly agreed to be questioned by police, he refused to provide them with a DNA sample. No problem. Police simply swabbed the chair in which Rayner had been sitting and took what he refused to voluntarily re- provide. Rayner's DNA was a match, and the suspect became a convict. In refusing to hear the case, the U.S. Supreme Court gave its tacit approval for government agents to collect shed DNA, likening it to a person's fingerprints on the color of or the color of their hair, eyes, or skin. Whereas fingerprint technology created a watershed uh, moment for police and their ability to crack a case, 
DNA technology is now being hailed by law enforcement agencies as the magic bullet in crime solving. It's what police like to refer to as a modern fingerprint. However, unlike a fingerprint, a DNA print reveals everything about who we are, where we come from, and who we will be. With such a powerful tool at their disposal, it was inevitable that the government's collection of DNA would become a slippery slope toward government intrusion. Certainly, it was difficult enough trying to protect our privacy in the wake of a 2013 Supreme Court ruling in Maryland versus King that likened DNA collection to photographing and fingerprinting suspects when they are booked, thereby allowing the government to take DNA samples from people merely arrested in connection with serious crimes. At the time, Justice Antonio Scalia warned that as a result of the court's ruling, your DNA can be taken and entered into a national database if you are even arrested, rightly or wrongly, and for whatever reason. Now, in the wake of the Raynor ruling, Americans are vulnerable to the government access and analyzing and storing their DNA without their knowledge or permission, as the dissenting opinion in Raynor for the Maryland Court of Appeals rightly warned, a person desiring to keep her DNA profile private must conduct her public affairs in a hermetically sealed hazmat suit. The majority's holding means that a person can no longer vote, participate in a jury, or obtain a driver's license without opening up his genetic material for state collection and codification. All 50 states now maintain their own DNA databases, although the protocols for collecting differ from state to state. That DNA is also being collected in the FBI's massive national DNA database, codenamed CODIS. That's Combined DNA Index System, which was established as a way to identify and track convicted felons and has since become a de facto way to identify and track the American people from birth to death. Indeed, hospitals have gotten in on the game by taking and storing newborn babies' DNA, often without their parents' knowledge or consent. It's part of the government's mandatory genetic screening of newborns. However, in many states, the DNA is stored indefinitely. What this means for those being born today is inclusion in a government database that contains intimate information about who they are, their ancestry, and what awaits them in the future, including their inclinations to be followers, leaders, or troublemakers. For the rest of us, time before the government gets hold of our DNA, either through mandatory programs carried out in connection with law enforcement and corporate America, or through the collection of our shed DNA or touch DNA. While much of the public debate, legislative efforts, and legal challenges in recent years have focused on the protocols surrounding when can police can legally collect the suspect's DNA with or without the search warrant, the question of how to handle shed or touch DNA has largely slipped through without much position. Folks, everybody sheds DNA. Is this a fun story or what? It's like a futuristic nightmare that's happening right now. Anyway, let's see what else. Because this story goes on and on, folks. Just, you know, you can find it. You know, do a search on the... Uh, now, when I was on uh, the air with uh, Al, 
a desk on uh, American Independence Hour prior to this show, we kind of touched on this story a little bit, which is uh, Obama picks another fight. This time it's with Venezuela. Yeah, the Obama administration, which in 2009 provided the crucial assistance that enabled the progressive Democratic president of Honduras to be overthrown and a junta of oligarchs to replace him, and which in 2014 perpetrated a bloody coup that replaced a corrupt but democratically elected Ukrainian president, Viktor Yankovich, replaced by a rabidly anti-Russian, equally corrupt government, and thus sparked the Ukraine civil war against the area of Ukraine that had voted 90% for Yakovitch, is now again trying to overthrow Venezuela's democratically elected president. Reuters on Monday, they had a headline, U.S. declares Venezuela a national security threat. And their report gives its closing word to an opposition politician who Obama supports and who says it's not a problem with Venezuela or with Venezuelans. It's a problem for the corrupt ones. Oh. In other words, yet again, the idea Obama is pushing is we're just trying to replace a corrupt elected head of state. Yeah, but what business is it of his in Venezuela? The White House explains its executive order on March 9th by saying, President Obama today issued a new executive order declaring a national emergency. Huh? With respect to the unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States posed by the situation in Venezuela. Well, okay. Okay, you declare a national emergency, unusual and extraordinary threat. Okay, what is that threat to the national security? How is the United States of America's national security threatened by Venezuela's internal problems? Huh? Foreign policy? Does this country even have a foreign policy? The executive order itself declares that the existing government of Venezuela limits rights and is corrupt. Of course, I'm sure they offer no evidence. Which constitutes an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States. And I hereby declare a national emergency to deal with that threat. Folks, this man should go to prison. President Barack Obama should go to prison. Because you know what? Declares that the existing government of Venezuela limits rights and is corrupt. Well, you know what? Any nation on earth could make the same accusation of Washington, D.C.'s government. So... Why doesn't Vladimir Putin just declare a national Russian emergency and say, well, I've declared the government of the United States, I declare their limiting rights and is corrupt. Would he be wrong? Would he be wrong? No. And you know what? I have no doubt 
that the government in Venezuela limits rights and is corrupt. But is that a national emergency to the United States? Wow. What's the real problem here? Well, here's the real problem. On February 14, 2015, President Maduro, he's the Venezuelan president, had thwarted a coup attempt against him by the governments of Canada and Great Britain. This followed almost exactly a year after he had already thwarted such an attempt by the United States government. In December 2013, the Maduro government presented detailed evidence that the United States was planning a coup against him. On January 15, 2015, Maduro met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. Well, the Obama administration is, of course, especially trying to bring down Vladimir Putin. President Obama is also trying to bring down Syria's President Bashir al-Assad. In 2011, he had bombed away the regime of Libya's President Muammar Gaddafi. Both Assad and Gaddafi also are, were, allies of Russia, as is Iran. The Obama administration is now assisting ISIS in its war against Assad, and even, even while bombing ISIS. Well, that's because ISIS is the United States. ISIS is a bunch of mercenaries formerly known as Blackwater, working for the United States government. They've got their own little private army. Now, in Missouri only got a minute left here. A Ferguson, Missouri judge who helped run the city's modern-day debtor's prison justice system resigned Monday night as the Missouri Supreme Court ordered all the city's cases to be transferred to St. Louis Circuit Court. Judge Ronald Brockmeyer announced his resignation as municipal court judge and as prosecutor in neighboring Delwood a week after the Justice Department published its scathing investigation on the systematic racism within the Ferguson Police Department and the excessive ticketing and fining of Ferguson residents by the city's courts. In a news release Monday, the Missouri Supreme Court said it hoped its intervention taken under Article 5 of the state constitution would help restore public trust and confidence in the Ferguson Municipal Court Division. So, folks, what's turning out to be about Ferguson, Missouri? Yeah, it blew up into a problem. But what was the problem? You know why, Al Sharpton? Now now we know why Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and all the other race baiters like Obama were down there going, oh, it's all about a race. It's all about the white police treating the black people bad. It's all about, no. You know what it was all about? It was all about covering up what's really going on. Let's say it's all racism. Let's say it's all race. It's all racism. It's because you're black. You know, it's because you're black. It's not because the courts are squeezing the life out of these people because they're corrupt, like so many other court systems around the country. And in Ferguson, finally, another shooting was all it took to blow it up. They're already pissed off. It's like, hey. 
You've been robbing us. You've thrown people in prison here for owing debts. See, there's a lot more going on than what it looks like is going on. This country's got some fundamental, real, bad problems. And if we don't start dealing with them, the whole place is going up in flames. And I don't think we're going to deal with them. So you better get ready for that eventuality. Prepare. Pre- get ready to protect yourself. Better get food, better get water, better get guns and lots of ammo. And you better get ready to use it. Anyway, I got to go. Time's up. Hope you'll do your part and talk to as many people as you can. Warn them. Warn them, folks. You don't want their blood on your hands, do you? Of course not. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR 2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR 2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. 
First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the Premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Technologies, which is involved in 
uh, researching and educating the public on technology issues. And currently, it's providing us a great deal um, uh, of the research base necessary to produce this video uh, and, and much of our work into the future. Welcome to my library. I want to start with a little discussion of the Lay Institute on Technology, Inc., which was set up as a Texas nonprofit corporation primarily uh, to educate the public on uh, the impacts of technology. And as a result of uh, that effort and my work with uh, Dorothy Lay, the founder of that foundation, uh, we're able to uh, continue to archive and develop material uh, that's useful uh, for, for research projects like this and many others. In fact, all that material now is posted on the Internet at, at www.layinstitute.org. And if you go there and you look at the site, there's a, um, uh, an area called EPI Search, and that is our research index. And so if you go there, you can search any keyword. You can look up HARP or climate change or radio or microwave or any of the uh, words that um, are of interest to you, and you'll see every document that we've stored there on those uh, archives available to the public uh, in a way that makes it uh, more useful in researching these issues. So take a look at that. It's useful in, uh, in conjunction with this uh, production today. But let's get back to the HARP issue and where that issue uh, began for me. HARP, HARP started uh, really with a very short um, segment, a little article actually in a magazine called Nexus, an Australian journal. Uh, I read the article and it was about a project taking place here in Alaska called HARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Project. And at that time, it was being operated by the uh, U.S. Navy and Air Force uh, in developing uh, what they called a developmental prototype um, for weapons applications of a very, very large uh, radio frequency array or field of antennas located here in Alaska. And so, you know, what happened when I read that article is I, you know, I looked at it and I thought, you know, Alaska is a, a big place geographically, but when you think about it uh, politically, it's very small. We have a small population. You tend to hear about what's going on, and virtually nothing had been reported in our local media regarding this project. And I'm kind of a curious person, and the article was pretty outrageous in what it was claiming. So I went and looked at uh, what was available um, first by searching the sources that were cited in that article at our local library, LUSAC, which happens to be one of 78 uh, libraries at that time in the country that were designated as federal repositories, places where any unclassified federal record are either stored or they have to produce it for you for free. So it's an incredible research uh, library here in Anchorage, and as I said, 78 of them around the United States. As a result, we were able to verify all the sources in that article. That got me pretty concerned, and I went uh, next to uh, talk to Trustees for Alaska, which is one of the larger sort of umbrella environmental groups in Alaska, and my thought was, you know, with the implications of this system, this group certainly had to be following the issue, and su surprisingly, uh, they weren't. In fact, they said the Audubon Society was looking at it. So I went over to the Audubon Society in Anchorage and talked to them. They had a very short file on the HARP project, and basically what they were concerned about was the few hundred of acres of wetlands that were going to be disturbed, and they were concerned about the flyway, where birds, uh, migratory birds, uh, were coming across that particular region. But those were their only concerns. Uh, there were much, much bigger implications to HARP discovering that virtually nobody was following the issue, it seemed like a very, very important issue to me. And so what I did is I sent um, a, a large amount of material, including the technical specifications for the array, to a friend of mine, a physicist, who had the background to take a look um, at whether or not the claims on this facility were actually real and whether it really was 
um, a threat. The conclusion that he and others made uh, was that it was a very significant issue, one that needed some public attention, and they insisted that I write an article about the subject. And so that began, for me, um, a journey that's now lasted 11 years in dealing with this issue and those things that came uh, out of it. But let's talk about what HARP uh, can do. As I said, it's a, uh, an array, a field of antennas. And what it, what it essentially started as was 48. Uh, six in one direction, eight in another direction, and these are 72 feet tall with a cross diapole. So they're a column going up and then a cross diapole going like so. And by firing these antenna in a very specific order, you can focus the radio frequency energy concentrated to a relatively small area up in an area above the Earth's surface called the ionosphere. And let me explain sort of where the ionosphere is. You've, you've got to look about 30 miles above the Earth's surface for the very beginnings of the ionosphere, and then it stretches out perhaps as far as 400 uh, kilometers uh, out into space and even further in the upper reaches of the ionosphere. And it acts as a, 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 an electrical shield, if you will, a, a, an energized area of our environment so that cosmic radiations coming in from the sun and from space hit this layer, and it acts as a filter, filtering out particle streams that would make a life on planet Earth impossible uh, without, um, without this. Now, people talk about ozone depletion as a major issue, and it certainly is, and we'll cover that in another uh, video in this series. But let's, let's talk about a hole in the ionosphere, which would be significantly greater than any problem um, attributed to uh, ozone depletion by comparison because of the kinds of radiation. It wouldn't be just ultraviolet radiation as is the case with ozone. This would be very, very dangerous uh, particle streams that would literally alter the genetic blueprint of the planet. So this is the area that the military is targeting as their research area in the developments of HARP. And HARP was originally invented by a guy named uh, Dr. Bernard Eastland, and it was an original concept that he had, and he had gone um, had this idea that you could create a shielding effect. And let me, let me talk a little bit about uh, what kind of effect uh, that might be. When you look at the ionosphere as this layer around the Earth, and then if you think of the Earth as also um, kind of a giant motor that's spinning around, and with that comes magnetic field lines. And these field lines go from the southern part of the poles all the way up, and they wrap around, they come back in at the northern polar regions. And in these polar regions, where those magnetic field lines interact with the atmosphere and oxygen and nitrogen, you get the aurora borealis, or the northern lights. Or in the southern hemisphere, you get the uh, equivalent of our northern lights. And it's where this energy is interacting with the atmosphere. Well, by using these naturally occurring field lines, you can actually manipulate energy coming off ground, coming off of a field of antennas like what HARP has in Gokana, Alaska, which is just 250 miles uh, northeast of Anchorage. This facility that was built um, in, in, 19, in the early 1990s has been advanced significantly. It started with 48 antenna. Um, they now have 180 in the array, eventually 360. The idea is, again, to focus that energy. By firing this in, in a, um, a sequence, this array, you can create what's called cyclotron resonance, which would be visually seen as sort of a corkscrewing motion of the energy as it rolls up into the ionosphere, getting more and more concentrated as it goes. Um, just the opposite of the way radio frequency energy generally works when it comes off of a, of a broadcast antenna where we hear radio programs. Hey, what happens in that case is the energy 
starts out concentrated, spreads out very, very rapidly in the same way that light from a flashlight spreads out uh, very rapidly. They follow the same basic principles uh, in physics. But as with light, it can be concentrated in the form of a laser where that light is concentrated and very, very powerful at far distances. The same is true by analogy with radio frequency energy and the harp array. That's what makes it so much different than anything else on the planet. The upper limits of the array in terms of effective radiated power, which is not the input power, but it's the um, effective radiated power, how that energy actually relates uh, in the environment. In, in this case, the desired level is one billion watts of effective radiated power, a huge amount of energy. And being able to manipulate that energy in a variety of ways for weapons applications. Now, why would they locate a facility like this in Alaska? Do you remember when I was talking about those magnetic field lines surrounding the Earth? The idea was that if you could send cyclotron resonance, uh, this energy coming off of uh, the radio frequency array, this radio frequency energy in this form up to those magnetic lines of force, they'd corkscrew themselves around them. And instead of the energy flowing north to south, the energy would be using that as a waveguide to, to go from north to south, the opposite direction. So in this case, what then happens is as you energize these field lines around the planet, any object passing through them would encounter a huge amount of energy that would disrupt the avionics, the electronics that control the flight path of intercontinental ballistic missiles or anything else uh, in the region, including satellites, low-orbiting satellites and the like. So the idea was to create this shield. That was number one. The amount of energy that was required was huge. So Dr. Eastland went to ARCO. At that time, Atlantic Richfield had huge, huge natural gas uh, resources on the north slope of Alaska ideally suited, according to Eastland's patents, uh, for exploitation of this technology because natural gas supplies would allow the um, conversion to electrical energy using magnetohydrodynamic generators called out in Eastland's patents. And then from there, that electrical energy could be fed into this huge array and then sent up to the ionosphere for the various weapons applications. So the ideal situation presented itself in the early 90s, and it was location within the boundaries of the United States for a ground-based system that, is, that in effect, as we go through the day today, um, you'll see has all of the ramifications that were being sought uh, in the 80s under the old Star Wars concepts, the idea of a global missile shield of protection from adversaries uh, using low-orbiting space platforms and the like. So here we had a technology emerging that could solve those things, for Atlantic Richfield, it was great because there's no gas line presently coming out of Alaska to bring that gas to market. And we've been producing oil from that field for over 30 years, yet we can't get uh, the natural gas. So for ARCO to be able to sell the gas to the military right where it is offered tremendous advantage. So they set up ARCO Power Technologies, Inc., a subsidiary with 30 employees. They originally bid on the HARP project after selling the concept to the military in the early days, in the late 80s. Uh, Dr. Eastland actually put together that original team that became Arco Power Technologies, Inc. Now, what they did as a subsidiary, they had no track record of military contracting. They had really no history at all. They bid for the HARP uh, construction um, and applications on that project and won. And who did they bid against? 
Raytheon Corporation. For one, Raytheon at the time was one of the what was the 44th uh, largest company uh, in the world, according to Forbes magazine. And they were the inventors of things like the Patriot missiles and some of the new um, active denial systems being promoted today. In other words, they had real weapons applications and histories, yet this little subsidy, Arco Power Technologies, won the contract. Now, in public procurement, the way you win those contracts is actually um, through what's called proprietary information. Certain companies are given extra points and advantage if they hold the technical knowledge necessary to carry a project out. In this case, Arco Power Technologies, Inc., own those nine uh, critical uh, patents associated with the HARP program. And those are cited in the book, Angels Don't Play This HARP, along with over 300 military, academic, and mainstream media reports on HARP. So that's the place, if you really want that detailed source material, get the book, take a look at the bibliographical uh, indexes, also look at the Lay Institute site. The, the fact is, what happened in all of this development was this excitement from ARCO, because here it was. They were going to make money on gas they could never make money on before. But what happened is the company went through some controversies, some changes. The company eventually sold. Actually, ARCO is no longer here. But the company itself, the subsidiary, was later sold to another organization called E-Systems. And E-Systems was the subject of Washington Post reports back in the early 90s, uh, they predominantly were, at that time, were a $2.1 billion company with the vast majority of their income derived from what are called black projects, projects so secret even the U.S. Congress doesn't know what they're funding. And the citations regarding that are also in the book, Angels Don't Play This Harp. The point is, this company ends up with, with the patents and, and, the, and the subsidiary. And what did they do? They sold out. They sold to none other than Raytheon Corporation, the losing bidder on the first project uh, in the beginning. So Raytheon ends up with the intellectual property. They end up with that project, and they later uh, sold to uh, British Aerospace, which is an interesting um, change of events, and that was in 2003. Um, the project also shifted in 2003 from the Navy and the Air Force over uh, to DARPA, which is uh, the Defense uh, Department's research agency that deals with, again, uh, very, very classified uh, research and projects. But let's go back to what does HARP really do? Okay, so we talked about how it focuses energy, but what would you do with that energy when you focus it? There were a number of concepts that D Dr. Eastland had. First of all was the issue of communications. The ionosphere, this layer above the Earth, when you think about, if you ever think about shortwave, how it broadcasts around the Earth, it literally strikes the ionosphere and bounces. And that's what allows shortwave to get around the, the curvature of the Earth and around the horizon. It uses the ionosphere. But when the ionosphere is disturbed, say, by um, really active solar activity, communications are also disturbed. Satellite communications can be disturbed. We know that when the ionosphere is active because the sun is active, that communication systems, even power grids across the planet, uh, can be affected by the way uh, energy is exchanged between the sun uh, and the earth and the systems within the earth. So knowing about the ionosphere and controlling it becomes extremely important for communications purposes, and we can all see why uh, the military would be interested in that. What they found is that they could disturb the ionosphere to such an extent using these kinds of systems that they could deny everyone else access to their communication systems. But by controlling those modulations and by controlling those pulse 
frequencies affecting the ionosphere, they could carry their own communications while denying everyone else access to theirs. Now again, if you can communicate with all of your aspects of your military and you can deny your adversary the ability to do that, we can certainly see the advantages of exploring that whole area. And that doesn't in itself present problems. What presents the problems is when we start manipulating this very important aspect of our, our environment without really knowing what the long-term consequences of those manipulations might be. Now let's talk a little bit about some of the other applications, because this is sort of a, a very versatile instrument in terms of how it can be used. And it essentially covers, uh, according to one study that was done by the University of Maryland, it was an executive report for the Congress, um, and what they did is they looked at sort of what parts of the spectrum could you affect. And everything from ultra-low frequencies to visible light can be affected, which covers 16 decades of frequency, which is a huge, huge range uh, for those that are technically oriented. Now, HARP actually operates with its primary frequencies in a little narrow band in the middle of that range. But by manipulating that energy, they can affect this entire range of spectrum. And that's, that's one of the key elements of HARP. It's not just um, what it can do in its primary mode of operation, but by pulsing and then modulating the signal on that carrier, you can create much, much different effects. One of the other effects that Dr. Eastland pointed out in his patent was the idea of, um, of being used for over-the-horizon radar. Now, this is really interesting because the old technology for over-the-horizon radar, uh, as things got in close, things would become very distorted so you couldn't see them. And you could really only see things at pretty high elevations. You couldn't see things, for instance, like cruise missiles coming in at those very low uh, ground elevations. With, uh, the, with the ability of HARP and over-the-horizon technology that it offers, you get everything from intercontinental ballistic missiles, those things coming in from literally coming back in from space, re-entering the atmosphere, all the way down to cruise missile heights, things coming out at a, at a, at a few uh, hundred feet above the Earth's surface and following its contours. And you don't get distortion when it gets close in. Again, we can see the advantages of doing that. For that application, you actually need two transmitters, and Alaska does have two. High Pass, located just outside of Fairbanks near the Poker Flats rocket range, which is a small array, and then the larger array um, at, at Gokana, Gokana, Alaska, um, which is, again, 250 miles uh, northeast of Anchorage. Now there, what you can do then is you can literally um, energize an area of the ionosphere, and it creates what's called a cold plasma or layer of energy that acts like a reflective mirror. And by moving it around and steering it, you can then send a signal from the other transmitter and bounce it over the curvature of the Earth. So you get this over-the-horizon effect. If you use, again, one of the other patents in this cluster held by Arco Power Technologies, Inc., is a gamma-ray detector designed for satellite-based applications. And utilizing, first, the HARP system to create a unique energy pattern around each of the incoming objects, then using gamma-ray detectors based on satellites, they could actually determine which of those incoming objects carry nuclear payloads and which ones are simply uh, decoys. Extremely important because in all nuclear scenarios, except for those by rogue states, we envision 100,000 incoming objects, of which only perhaps a few hundred actually carry nuclear payloads. Now, we don't have the capability of knocking out all of those objects, but if we could isolate uh, the real threats, those that carry nuclear payloads, then obviously um, an advantage is gained there. So that over-the-horizon uh, application and then the idea of detecting 
by the unique energy signature around all those objects. And then the third application in this series was the idea of creating what's called an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, or a surge of energy so strong that it overrides the electronic circuits, those little microcircuits within all of um, sophisticated electronics and computer systems, overrides them, causing bit errors and computer error that causes those aircrafts uh, to crash. And in some cases, with enough EMP power, you can literally melt circuitry. So three phases, if you increase the power sufficiently on the heart facility, you can create this EMP effect and knock out everything in the sky. Now, obviously, in a nuclear scenario, we can see um, the need for something like this, but at the same time, everything else that's in that space or in that range is also going to be knocked out, all the civilian aircraft. That's the collateral damage uh, in such an event and if we were to use such technology. Now, Alaska is the place where the new um, uh, system for missile defense is actually being constructed. Let's get back to the um, issue of missile defense for just a moment, because this is a, a, an extremely important aspect of the whole HARP story, because this is really where it began. And when you go back to 95, when we were first publishing on the subject, you know, Gene Manning and I wrote the book Angels Don't Play This Harp, really uh, as a beginning point to get public debate on the issue. Um, I've done thousands of radio broadcasts in the last 11 years uh, on this issue, as well as traveled to Europe uh, 13 times on related um, issues. Now, at one point, um, early on in 1997, I got a call from a gentleman, uh, Tom Spencer, and Tom was at that time the environmental chairman of the European Parliament, and he was a conservative from Great Britain. And Tom uh, asked me a lot about HARP, wanted the information. Apparently, someone here in the United States who had heard us on radio, gotten a copy of our book, had forwarded it on to him, uh, and it got his attention. Now, when he made inquiries into the uh, British military about um, HARP and related technologies, the answer he kept getting from them was, Tom, stay out of us, don't get involved. Uh, and for Tom Spencer, uh, that was really the wrong answer. In fact, it was his ticket to the dance because it got him very involved in this issue. Uh, we began a dialogue, and he brought uh, myself and a, a friend of mine, a physicist, over uh, to, to um, actually Brussels, where we were able to meet uh, with him and other parliamentarians and others involved in military-related issues, and we also were able to form um, an association between uh, Greens, um, the Social Democrats, and the Conservatives around the HARP issue, uh, largely because of the work of, of Tom Spencer. Now, in the interim, uh, several things started to happen. Uh, Tom brought us into a couple of different venues, and, and I want to tell the story because it's a big part of sort of how this thing started to shape. He brought us in uh, to a number of venues, and the first one was um, one on Arctic issues by the organization called GLOBE. And this was um, uh, an organization composed of uh, 200 uh, federally elected or nationally elected legislators from 44 governments from around the world, dealing primarily with uh, environmental-related uh, issues. And this was um, an opportunity to talk about HARP within that forum. Right after our presentation, we were approached by members of the Russian Duma. Now, this is going back to 1997-98 time frame. They approached us, were very interested in the issue, because Russians actually, the Soviets, back in the 70s, had utilized very similar systems. In fact, if you go back, um, there was a signal that was reported by um, uh, shortwave broadcasters as the woodpecker signal, and it was this irritating noise that they would pick up on shortwave broadcasts. They triangulated the positions back to five transmitters in the former Soviet Union that were responsible for creating those signals. Those were the early 
predecessors uh, to HARP. And we'll get back to that in, in a little bit. But in the European Parliament, Tom Spencer then became uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, the most powerful committee, or one of the most powerful in the European Parliament. He then was able to bring us back um, to testify uh, in the uh, Security and Disarmament Subcommittee of the Foreign Affairs Committee on the issue of HARP. And what eventually happened is several sections were included in the European Parliament resolution on disarmament, specifically addressing uh, the problems associated with HARP. And, and what we were able to demonstrate there are many of the um, uh, applications and uses by presenting non-classified military documents uh, as well as the planning documents from the facility and in tracing and showing the history of this facility. The Europeans acted, as did uh, later uh, the Russians in uh, 2002 when they passed their own similar resolution. The problem, um, going back uh, to that testimony in the European Parliament in February of 98, was one issue that we raised where they had strong objections. And we had said that in that hearing that the United States would unilaterally abandon uh, the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistics Missile Treaty with the former Soviet Union, considered one of the anchors in world peace globally by Europeans um, and, and our traditional allies as well as our adversaries. The idea that we would abrogate that without cluing in our traditional allies in Brussels and throughout Western Europe, uh, they just couldn't accept. Uh, the fact is we had said it would happen within a year. We were off by three months. It was three months later that the United States uh, began their moves, which eventually uh, led to the, the abandonment of that treaty. Uh, this was done under both um, the Clinton administrations uh, and, and the Bush administrations. Even though Clinton had said he would never uh, support this kind of move, he in the end, uh, in fact, did. The, the, what happened then is a lot of uh, concerns because we were so right on in terms of the, our predictions of what was going to happen. We even gave them the rationale that the senior senator from Alaska, Ted Stevens, would use, which was, there is no Soviet Union, therefore there is no treaty. That's what he said on the floor of the United States Senate in the prelude to the abandonment of that treaty. This is a problem, uh, and it has been a problem uh, for our European allies, and probably was one of the most significant points of um, disembarking from a policy of cooperation, because when you think about it, they really should have been clued in. Parliamentarians should have been part of a dialogue that involves something so strategically important to them, uh, our traditional allies, our NATO allies, the abandonment of a fundamental treaty. The other issue, uh, going back to HARP, that was raised in the hearings uh, was this whole issue of um, how else would it be used, what are the implications environmentally, et cetera. And, you know, we spent, we were supposed to have a 15-minute presentation. They actually gave me an hour and a half to present on these issues because of the ramifications of HARP. They later issued a, a report that didn't just include the ramifications of HARP, but all of these systems associated with it and this whole direction in technology that's taking place today, of which HARP is just a small part. Well, let's get back to some of the other applications of HARP and some of the other things that it can do. One of the other applications that came up um, early on was the idea of what's called earth-penetrating tomography. Let me make that really simple. Uh, by analogy, uh, it would be like X-raying the earth or looking into the earth several kilometers or several miles deep to look at underground structures for mineral deposits, uh, nuclear facilities, tunnels, mining facilities, all those kinds of things can be detected by earth-penetrating tomography. Now, the way that this would work with HARP is really unique, and this is, again, going back to Dr. Eastland's patents. By sending this energy up, this focused energy up to the ionosphere, 
what they can do is they can pulse the energy so it acts like a punch. So it's punching the ionosphere with this force that causes the ionosphere to vibrate in resonance and harmony with the signal on the ground. So, if, for instance, in, uh, in Norway where they have one of these facilities operating, uh, they were able to play Wagner uh, in a way that got the ionosphere to literally vibrate to Wagner, as an example. In the low frequency range, extremely low frequency range, the ELF range, it sends a signal back to the Earth, and ELF uh, signals are very long wavelengths. And what they do is they penetrate the Earth and sea all the way through the Earth and sea. Nothing stops uh, these ELF signals from penetrating. Unlike the shorter wavelengths, the millimeter and centimeter wavelengths of um, other communication systems, microwave systems, and so on, these don't penetrate very deep, so they can't get down to, say, submarines at depth. So the way we communicate with submarines around the planet is we use 14 to 26-mile long antennas buried under the ground that create these ELF signals. They're in Michigan and Wisconsin and some out on the Aleutian chain and other locations around the world. What HARP offered was a new technology that would literally change the ionosphere by sending that energy up and pulsing it in. The ionosphere then acts as a broadcast antenna sending back energy to the Earth. Uh, in the ELF range at fairly low energy concentrations, approximately the same as what the Earth naturally produces. These signals penetrate the Earth, and their character is measured um, by instruments on the ground or low-flying um, objects that can then pick up these signals and then deduce, determine exactly what those underground structures look like. In MSNBC, right after 9-11, um, November 27, uh, 2001, uh, there was an MSNBC report where they cited HARP as a, as a useful technology to use in Afghanistan for locating all of those underground facilities and the like. And the reason that they knew it would work in those applications is going back to 1995 and the congressional appropriations under the defense budget in that year, they appropriated $11 million to HARP to test just that application under the caveat that if it didn't work for Earth-penetrating uh, tomography or they didn't test that application, it wouldn't get any more funding. Now, they tested the application on a program um, uh, on the ionosphere on a, on a show called Horizons, aired on BBC TV. A professor from the University of Maryland, Professor Papadopoulos, actually talked about the results of the Earth-penetrating tomography test with HARP, where they were looking at underground mining facilities in the area uh, surrounding Fairbanks, Alaska, and we're able to determine with 99% accuracy the location of those tunnels when comparing them to the actual maps and surveys of those underground works. So they proved the technology would work. If you go back to Atlantic Richfield, the oil company that started this whole project, you can see why they would be interested. I mean, if you get a whole profile of the higher north slope regions of Alaska and other oil-producing regions of the world, know with certainty under the ground, great things for their perspective and their shareholders can be gained. In fact, an expert in this area um, was able to look at that idea, this earth-penetrating um, tomography issue, a guy named Brooks Agnew. Brooks Agnew is an interesting guy. He's a specialist in earth-penetrating uh, tomography, and actually there's an article uh, by him posted on my website at www.earthpulse, earthpulse.com. At that site, you can read the article in detail, but basically what, what he found is um, back uh, during the 80s and 90s, he was doing work in earth-penetrating tomography for the oil industry. And what he was, um, was able to do is with 
30 watts of power, which is you know nothing compared to a billion watts of effective radio power with heart, but with 30 watts of power, he was able uh, to get um, uh, profiles of ground strata um, several kilometers uh, deep. And he actually used this with a company that's now fairly well known, uh, Halliburton. He went around to uh, nine states and 26 known uh, drill sites where they actually knew exactly what the ground strata was and the oil and gas grades that were there. And Brooks Agnew, with his technology, Earth Penetrating Tomography, was able to determine with 99% accuracy not only the ground strata differentials, but whether there was oil and gas in the ground and, whether, and, and the quality of those uh, oil and gas deposits. Uh, that is incredible technology considering that uh, the method of, 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 of use was not disturbing in terms of uh, natural systems at those very low power levels. Yet, you know, when you think about oil and gas, you know, those are public resources. Having certainty about where to drill and what to do um, would certainly change the dynamics of how the industry uh, competitively uh, fought for those resources and would have huge implications uh, in the economies of the world. But the point of the matter is, that technology is not being used for mineral exploration today. It's being used uh, primarily for military applications, as is the case with HARP. The question in my mind has always been, did any of these guys under any of these transfer agreements, uh, did the oil companies retain rights? Did they keep rights so they could utilize that data in the future? Why isn't the U.S. government utilizing that data for isolating um, oil fields within the United States and other places? It's a good question and one that still remains uh, to be answered. But when you get into earth-penetrating tomography, the problem that Brooks Agnew has and others have voiced is the idea of the energy concentrations, because what he knew is that if you used too much energy, in his worst-case scenario, you could trigger uh, ge geologic events, earthquakes, those kinds of events could be triggered uh, utilizing high-energy uh, densities in the ELF range. In fact, there was a uh, DOD news brief briefing. It goes back to April 27, uh, 1997, and it was a, at the um, University of Georgia, and it was Secretary of Defense William Cohen. He was commenting on weapons of mass destruction. Remember, that's way before 9-11. And one of the weapons of mass destruction he cited were environmental weapon systems utilizing electromagnetic energy for triggering earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and climate alterations. This is... Um, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, making that statement uh, in a DOD news briefing in 1997. That the idea of using energy um, or accidentally triggering these events was the big concern of, um, of Brooks Agnew when he started looking at HARP as an issue. The other was, what would happen if um, this energy going up into the ionosphere actually um, acted as a conductor or formed a shunt connecting uh, to the Earth this energy from the ionosphere. What he envisioned would then happen is it would form a, a, a tap where the energy actually flowed from the ionosphere down to the Earth, and it would look like, according to Brooks Agnew, uh, the biggest bolt of lightning you've ever seen in your life striking the Earth 40 times a second. Now, granted, the idea of a um, bolt of lightning, the biggest you've ever seen, striking the Earth 40 times a second until all that energy was discharged out of the ionosphere is granted the most extreme of situations and one that certainly hasn't manifested itself yet. But these are the kinds of concerns being raised by independent scientists literally around the world and now by some of the governments around the world. There's a couple of other applications of HARP that I want to talk a little bit about. 
Um, the first one, and these are the two most, probably the most controversial um, areas of HARP. The first one deals with the idea of manipulating weather systems. And this is a very important issue because, again, you're dealing with concepts that have been attempted over the years. In fact, these days you've actually got the United States Congress, um, two bills pending, one in the Senate, one in the House, to create a commission uh, for review of weather modification technology because commercial interests are now advancing them along with um, other militaries from around the world. So you've got economic interest interested as much as the military in controlling weather outcomes and climate outcomes for obvious uh, advantage and reasons. Um, but it creates problems. And here's what happens with HARP. HARP is also capable of, in fact, the early versions were called ionospheric heaters because they literally would heat the ionosphere. And when you think of this area being heated, it's about 30 miles in diameter above the uh, facility itself. And when you heat the area up by, by affecting uh, this region, you literally push it up. So it goes up and out into space perhaps as far as 200 kilometers. Instead of being 30 uh, miles above the Earth's surface, now you're almost a couple hundred miles potentially out into space with this column, and the lower atmosphere below rushes in to fill that space. Now what happens then? Firstly, any satellite that was a low-orbiting satellite zipping through space hits this area, hits this energized um, area that's supposed to be there, and all of a sudden hits atmosphere, it encounters friction, and the satellite burns up and it crashes. So as an anti-satellite technology. The Russians, through the Strategic, Strategic Studies Institute in London, reported that they had actually uh, looked at Russian papers that had a concept for incoming comets and asteroids. You know, most of these things, when they come into our atmosphere, they burn up um, because you've got this 30 miles where these objects are coming in at such high velocities. They encounter the friction. They begin to burn up, and they break up, and nothing ever hits the Earth. But big objects make it to ground, and big problems can occur accordingly. But think about, instead of 30 miles, having maybe 210 miles of range and distance of atmosphere to break up those incoming objects. Much larger objects can be destroyed in that way. That was some of the research that the Russians had done uh, utilizing the technology of their heaters back in the 70s. Now, that all is, is interesting in and of itself, anti-satellite technology, uh, the idea of what else happens when you burn that hole in the ionosphere is all of those um, uh, particle streams, again, uh, come in to fill that space. You know, very, very important um, situation. Now, granted, it's continually energized by, um, by the sun and by the activities of the planet in terms of our geomagnetics, but how long they leave it open, what occurs, those are things that are not being looked at by the biological scientists that ought to be affiliated with this program. So we really understand the implications of what's happening. If you take it a little bit further and you start to look at this whole concept of using a system on the ground to aggravate um, the ionosphere. Now, what else happens when that lower atmosphere rushes in? You also change uh, pressure systems in the immediate region in terms of uh, lows and highs and the way those pressure systems work and the way in which jet streams flow by altering the flow of jet streams, by altering uh, the way the atmosphere is located within an area, that's where you can get these huge, uh, huge problems. Back in the uh, 1977, the United States ratified a treaty where we agreed to not use um, environmental manipulation as a weapon of war, whether it be to create earthquakes or tidal waves or volcanic eruptions or disturb the weather. 
Um, all of these things were restricted under that treaty when, when they involved national boundaries or crossing national boundaries. Like most U.S. treaties, um, the exemption is for domestic use. Um, the treaties we sign with all these other countries have a clause within them that allows um, use of the technologies that might be forbidden against another country to be used within the boundaries of your own country. Uh, the Chemical and Biological Treaty is a good one uh, as an example. Um, R Russia being a signatory um, to that treaty, uh, yet they used gases within the uh, conflict with Chechnya when they had a bunch of people being uh, trapped in a movie theater. You may remember this. They pumped in a, a gas that was supposed to knock everyone out so they could go in and, and take care of the terrorists and free the hostages. And in fact, over 100 people died from the asphyxiation. That particular gas would have been forbidden in an international conflict across the outside of the sovereignty of, of Russia. Um, but again, these treaties do not um, have parallel legislation that goes up alongside of them that says, hey, if this, isn't, if this is good enough for our adversaries, it's good enough for us. Um, and really, we need that parallel legislation. Every time we sign a treaty, there ought to be a domestic law going right up alongside it. The environmental modification treaties were no exception. Uh, we continued our experimentation within the United States. The idea now that we can modify weather in, to a large degree is something that's not just unique um, uh, to the United States. The Russians, through private companies, have offered, according to um, New York Times articles, have offered that um, uh, service to other uh, governments to help with uh, weather-related um, problems and issues. The idea also, um, the last three secretaries of defense, including the present one, have all called for the abandonment of that um, environmental treaty, primarily because the technologies have advanced to the point where controlling the environment for warfare applications becomes incredibly useful, also for waging covert warfare. The idea of denying a country its rainfall for its agricultural production at the same time you have an embargo ongoing um, would, would, would be uh, the kind of act of war that you could uh, plausibly deny and yet have a devastating effect, even a greater effect than the traditional bombs and bullets. And this really gets into the essence of what's behind HARP and technologies like HARP. It's what the military now calls the revolution of military affairs, or they refer to it as a revolution of military and political affairs because of the way these things interrelate. What makes governments powerful today in the world is, in fact, their command of technology. Uh, if you look around the world, those governments with the highest technology are those that dominate the world scene. So technology becomes important for all of us um, to at least have conceptual knowledge of some of these projects, including HARP. But HARP is just one of many, many projects. And as we took this issue on, there was an underlying um, uh, problem as well. Some of the things that were um, developed by the inventor, ideas that should be explored, were being ignored because military had no interest. A good example was Dr. Eastland had this idea that using radio frequency energy, you could actually trigger uh, chemical reactions in the upper atmosphere, which in fact you can. I mean, it's, it's well known. But what you can do by triggering these reactions is you could actually create ozone. In other words, if ozone depletion is truly a problem, here you have a system that can replenish ozone uh, utilizing known, uh, known uh, laws of science. Likewise, knocking out particular pollutants. Um, again, by understanding their interactions with radio frequency energy to be able to neutralize pollutants in the environment. None of these things are being looked at, and yet they offer huge potentials. I've had lots of conversations with Dr. Eastland over the years, and, you know, he's, he's 
got a much different view. I mean, he's a, a senior scientist, um, an outstanding uh, physicist on the world scene. His concepts today for advancing energy um, systems and, and ways to really free people and utilize the science not for our destruction but for its enhancement. And I think that's where lots of science gets um, misused when those uh, using it are only seeing certain applications. But let's get down to the most controversial issue uh, dealing with heart, which is the physical effects on human health. And I want to get into the ELF effects because this is extremely important. And there's another video in this series on mind control, which gets into this idea of being able to be overridden by radio frequency energy from the outside. And this is what, what we know from the research. If you go back to the mid-1980s, there was a document called Low-Intensity Conflict in Modern Technology. It was produced at Maxwell Air Force Base, and it has a section in it on electromagnetic weapon systems, where it gets into a whole discussion of what was possible. If you even go back further, you've got to go back to a book called Unless Peace Comes, published in 1969. Within that is a chapter called How to Wreck Your Environment. And the, the reason this is an important chapter, that's before Earth Day, you know, that was later in the 70s, so you could get away with a chapter like that. But nonetheless, the guy that wrote it was a guy named G.F. G. Gordon McDonald, and he was a full professor at UCLA and a science advisor to President Johnson when he was in the presidency. And he had written back then that if we could ever figure out how to electronically stroke the ionosphere in just the right way, we could return a signal to the Earth that would literally uh, manipulate the behavior of people over huge geographic areas. That was G.F. Gordon McDonald's ideas um, going back then. But in 1969, we didn't have a way to electronically stroke uh, the ionosphere and create that kind of returning signal. Later in a book by Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, it was a book called Between Two Ages. And in this book is a reiteration of uh, J.F. Gordon's, um, Gordon's um, ideas about, um, again, uh, being able to electronically stroke the ionosphere and return a signal to the Earth. In this particular book by Brzezinski, and Brzezinski, for those who don't remember, he later became National Security Advisor to President Carter. Um, at the time he wrote the book, he was a professor and researcher at U uh, excuse me, Columbia University. But here's this idea. Now, how do you electronically stroke the ionosphere? That's exactly what HARP does. But what kind of signal returns is what's relevant? And here's why. When you think about energy, most energy passes through us, and we have huge amounts of radio frequency energy passing through us right today. You know that that nature creates a certain amount of radio frequency energy that has always been here, but man creates 200 million times more radio frequency energy than what uh, nature creates. So that surrounds us. We're literally surrounded in that soup, and that's just radio frequency energy. When you think of that whole electromagnetic spectrum, there's a whole lot of other energy that man's created that surrounds us as well. But the human body is really unique. It's like the ultimate tuner. Uh, most energy passes through us like um, static between the stations. You know, when you're going through the radio stations and you're looking for that, that favorite uh, channel, it's when resonance occurs between the receiver and the transmitter, that thing sending the energy, the radio station, to the radio receiver. When they're in harmony, you get a nice clear signal and you get your station. The same is true by analogy within the human body. And this is what the military research has shown, is that, you can affect everything down to a molecular level if you understand enough about the physics of the body and the math of radio frequency energy's relationship to it. You can manipulate radio frequency energy to affect the body. And this is what they did actually in a study sponsored by the Air Force. The study was at the University of Utah. It was completed in 1985, and it was um, under the auspices of the 
Science Advisory Board to the Air Force, and it was it produced what's called the Radio Frequency Dosimetry Handbook. Simple language, it's the dosages of radio frequency energy necessary to override every vital organ of the body, including the brain, whether it be the liver, the kidneys, the heart, the lungs, to interfere with their natural performance as, weapon, as a weapon or weapon application. Now, again, you're talking about energy that is different. We're talking about a whole different view of warfare. We're using energy as the base. These technologies are now being developed for things like the active denial system, which is using um, knowledge of microwave millimeter waves to affect the body to create uh, pain or heat sensations affecting only the nerve endings on the surface of the body. But these basic principles apply to the entire living organism. So Jose Delgado is an interesting guy. He was at Yale University in the mid-60s He began mapping the human brain by planting electrodes in primates and humans to see how to affect the different parts of the brain, to figure out what parts of the brain were affected um, and, and affected our, you know, our health and the way we thought and just sort of how the brain worked, mapping it out. Well, by the mid-80s, you know, he had figured out a lot of other things. He found out that not only could you map the brain, but you could stimulate the brain. And so starting in, in 1969, he put the implants in, and there's a famous image of him with the charging bull, and he throws the switch of a radio a transmitter, and the bull stops right in its tracks, right in front of the guy. And in this case, he used an, an implant that affected um, the bull in a way that caused it to, to stop. Now, what he found by the mid-'80s is he didn't need any implanted technology whatsoever. All he needed was radio frequency energy modulated and pulsed in just the right way uh, to carry a signal. And what they found is it took only one-fiftieth of what the Earth's natural radio frequency energy level was to affect us dramatically. And with the case of primates and humans, making them lethargic or passive, uh, almost asleep, to highly agitated and awake, back and forth, back and forth, like throwing a light switch on and off, on and off. No implants, no physical contact, using radio frequency energy, one-fiftieth of what the Earth naturally produces. HARP, in its Earth-penetrating tomography mode, will produce 50 times more energy than is necessary to override normal brain function, according to the research at Yale University and the research conducted by the Air Force and Navy in all of those projects that we cite uh, within our published work. Now, when you think about the idea of manipulating brain activity, um, you can do it for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, it can be an accidental side effect, which is what the military says is the case uh, with HARP. But the question of side effect or deliberate effect really takes us back to this issue of human manipulation. Is it possible? And let's talk about that a little bit more in depth.
This is the theta range, approximately 4 to 7 hertz, or pulses per second. 7 to approximately 11 or 12 hertz is the alpha range. Uh, this is where you are when you're in that zone or ideal place for learning and doing art and that kind of activity. The better ranges get into where you're actively listening and participating all the way up to agitated states. And what we know is that any external signal, whether it be flickering light or whether it be bioral beat created by sound or whether it be electromagnetic energy being pulsed through the body or radio frequency energy, all of these things at the right pulse rates can override normal brain function and change uh, the way our brain chemistry uh, then looks because it starts with the energy interactions that then create the chemical uh, reactions that then create changes uh, in our behaviors. So the idea of accidentally triggering these kinds of events or deliberately doing it, as was discussed by Zbigniew Brzezinski and McDonald, the idea that you could literally do this and affect 70 or 80 percent of the population within a large area. HARP can do this as a side effect or a deliberate effect based on the science and research done by the military in developing these technologies. It's not one of the stated goals of HARP, uh, but it is an issue that needs to be looked at and one that Russians and Europeans have begun to raise concerns about because their research also shows exactly what we're saying uh, is in fact the case. The, the problem uh, with technology and the directions in which it's going when you consider things like HARP is we're getting away from the bullets and the bombs and ordnance and going to energy-based technologies. Now, energy-based technologies present some unique challenges. Firstly, um, from the standpoint of really looking at the damage that we create, we affect living systems and electronic systems, but we don't affect the basic uh, infrastructure of countries. You know, we're about to spend $2 trillion um, in the total expenditures anticipated in Iraq alone. That is a huge amount of expenditure over the years it's going to take to rebuild it and what has already been spent destroying it. So these weapons are being developed to keep the infrastructures in place but kill or affect the living uh, people within these regions. So the idea of heart being turned to these uses in the future as these um, uh, techniques and technologies are advancing uh, shouldn't be um, discounted at all. In fact, it should be expected. It is one of the reasons that international bodies are beginning to complain uh, about this technology's potential, potential abuses. So you've got, when you look at HARP, a very versatile instrument from earth penetrating tomography and earth imaging, affecting weather systems, affecting communications, over the horizon radar, global shielding, all of those applications for obvious reasons uh, people can see strategic advantage. However, again, when you're dealing with literally connecting a machine on the ground to a component of the environment with the expressed intention of manipulating the environment for weapons applications, that concept alone deserves significant international discussion. And because it's being generated in this country, in the United States, it should have significant public discussion about the ramifications, not just within our own territory, but around the world. And that's what's missing from much of the HARP debate. Now, let's go back for a minute to the, the work of Dr. Ben Eastland. You know, when he originated this concept, it was a long time ago. You know, you're now going back to the uh, late 1980s and the 1980s through the early 1990s. You know, technology's advanced dramatically since then. And Dr. Eastland hasn't just been sitting around uh, either. You know, he's got other projects he's been working on that are quite interesting. And one of those recently, um, in fact, in uh, October of uh, 2005, he presented a paper at Penn State on weather modification utilizing gravitational waves. Now, what's important about this paper, extremely important about this paper, 
is that it talks about being able to modify weather using 1,600 times less energy than was anticipated for weather modification applications using HARP. In other words, 1,600 times less energy than was once thought to be needed. It's now understood by him as a physicist um, in a major university presentation uh, to be possible. Now, when you think about weather modification, one of the other things that happened with Dr. Eastland is he was invited um, by the European Space Agency to do a paper on weather modification utilizing the HARP systems. Uh, that was completed um, in, in 1999 and presented uh, for peer review um, at a major uh, space uh, expo in, in Europe. Coming off of that paper, uh, FEMA and NASA contracted with Dr. Eason to pre prepare a paper utilizing space-based technologies, satellite-based technologies for weather modification applications. And one of the things that he saw and that he mentions in both these papers is, for instance, being able to affect tornadoes. And the idea of tornadoes, you know, you have a warm front coming into contact with a cold front, and when they come together, you get a shearing force that causes that twisting action where you get the tornado formation. So the idea of Ethan was if you could heat the cold front sufficiently that when these two fronts connected, you didn't get that energy differential to create that tornado formation, you could essentially knock out tornadoes. The problem is, of course, if you miss and you heat the already heated area um, so that there's even a greater differential when it encounters the cold front, you have more energy available to create even a more destructive tornado. The fact of the matter is, other governments around the world have taken this very seriously, including our own, and has invested a significant amount of money to look at how to, in fact, uh, affect these things. Remember a few years ago, back during the Clinton administration, actually, uh, there was a tornado that whipped through Oklahoma City, and Clinton showed up, and there was a press report that talked about him saying, don't worry, eventually we're going to figure out how to knock out the energy of those tornadoes, and these won't ever, ever hurt civilized uh, uh, cities again. Well, you know, that was the same city where Ben Eastland at the University of Oklahoma did his computer modeling to figure out how to knock out the energy uh, in those tornadoes a few months before. So what Clinton was actually saying was based on the scientific evidence that had been produced in that very same city just months before. The idea of weather modification um, continues uh, to be of major interest, again, as we advance this revolution of military affairs, which is this com uh, concept of, of warfare emerging here uh, in the beginning of the 21st century and at the end of the last century. Now, that concept essentially came from a paper written in 1989 by the U.S. Army War College, and it was uh, a paper that was called The Revolution of Military Affairs. And what it said is that the technology was changing so dramatically, they equated it with the change that happened when gunpowder was introduced to Europe in the Middle Ages or when atomic uh, weapons were introduced in the middle of the last century. That's the kind of revolution taking place today using energy as the base of the science. Not bullets and bombs, but speed of light technologies from high-powered lasers to particle beams to harp systems. These are the systems of the 21st century, and here's what we have to consider. When you're using energy discharges, like for instance in, in an anti-ballistic um, missile arrangement where you've got incoming uh, missiles, you know, here in Alaska, we've become the place where they've built the new uh, missile defense system. So they've installed un in underground silos interceptors, you know, literally bullets to hit other bullets flying at us at about 30,000 miles an hour in reentry speeds. They're going to try and pick those off, and in most of the tests so far conducted, they failed. The reality is they won't use conventional warheads to knock out 
these craft, they're going to use space-based laser systems that are being developed, other energy-based systems. And the reason we know this is because you have the ability to, number one, target with precision. These weapons, when they fire a laser or a particle beam, they travel at the speed of light, 186,300 miles per second. That can literally go around the planet seven times with time left over in less than a second. So being able to target, say, an intercontinental ballistic missile, you'd literally be able to knock it out of the sky before it ever left the launch pad uh, with this type of technology. That's where missile defense is going in the 21st century. The interceptors are the party line for the public. The reality is these other systems are advancing. The Department of Energy has owned patents since the late 1980s that are cited in the book, Earth Rising, the Revolution, which I wrote with James Roderick a number of years ago. The fact is they've had the technology. They're advancing the technology. HARP is a part of this advancement, this revolution in military affairs. The other thing that's happening and where the HARP issue starts to cross over is the idea of affecting our physical bodies, affecting our health or our mental states. That is a, an area of technology that has raised huge, huge controversies around the world today and is continuing to be raised today because of the implications in 24th century warfare. Now, take the concept of speed of light weapons and overlay that concept on this idea that George Bush, George W. Bush has introduced um, as President of the United States called preemptive warfare. This is the concept of figuring out who your enemies are before they know you're, they're your enemies and wiping them out. <laughs> you know, it works good when you're the top dog, when you own all the technologies that uh, make preemptive warfare effective. But in the advent of speed of light weapons, weapons that discharge instantly where there is no time to react, is preemptive warfare a concept we want to introduce to the world scene today? China, the largest industrial power emerging on the planet, 13% growth per year consistently, 11 to 13% growth per year, building the, the, the largest industrial base, dwarfing the Industrial Revolution of the West of the last century. They're going to be capable of developing these very same technologies. They say, don't worry about the Chinese. They only spend 40 to $44 billion a year on defense a fraction of what we spend in the United States. In fact, 10% approximately of what we spend in the United States. But if you look at what you buy in China for $44 billion, it's significantly more than we get for all the money we spend on defense within this country. That is the major, major issue. Taking from the brains of a billion citizens in a centralized government like China's and isolating those technologists, those future scientists, those engineers, that can develop this type of technology is, in fact, a major area of Chinese advancement according to things being released by our Central Intelligence Agency today. Articles that have appeared in Russian military journals and other journals indicate that they are moving along the same path that we are with as much speed as we are. The problem is, again, the ideologies behind the technologies, whether it's the Chinese government, the Chinese military, or whether it's the United States government, Whatever the value systems that drive our technology, they should come from the people and spring forward. That's the nature of democratic republics. That's the nature of democracies. That's what's missing in the evolution of military technologies around the world today, including the United States. 
one of the other applications of the, of the HARP technology is the idea of energy transfer from one place on the planet to another. And this is really one of the more interesting ones. It's, it's one of the first tests, in fact, the first test of a small array was to see if you could focus the radio frequency energy in a way where you could take uh, electrical energy, convert it to radio frequency energy, then send it back up into, say, a satellite or a low-orbiting space platform, and turn that radio frequency energy back into electrical energy where it can be utilized as a power source. Now, why this is important as a power source, if you think about it, low-orbiting space platforms, if you could put these low-orbiting uh, space platforms around the planet to utilize energy-based technologies like space-based lasers, you could get closer to your targets, but you have to have a fuel source. You can't just keep sending shuttles up there with um, energy you have to be able to get the energy uh, to those low-orbiting space platforms. And what they, could, they figured they could do with HARP and systems like HARP is keep energized space platforms for up to 10,000-hour missions, so literally, indefinitely, keeping objects afloat by continually feeding them the necessary energy they need to recharge uh, and maintain their power levels. The other place where they looked at low-orbiting space platforms um, is using the ionosphere itself, literally tapping the energy as these Space platforms whip through the ionosphere um, using tethers, long um, uh, conductors drag dragging from below, actually picking up power along the way. And you remember the shuttle experiment a number of years ago where they did this with a tether hanging from the shuttle and such a huge amount of power built up that it almost blew the shuttle out of the sky. The reality is these are all ways of looking at um, energy-based uh, warfare system, something that we haven't had in the past. In the 1980s, during the first of Star Wars, these were discounted because you couldn't stabilize satellites to, for instance, fire a laser. And if you get just a little bit of wobble from a distance, you know, the further you go, the further out that wobble becomes. If you're a carpenter, you know that if you start on one side of a house and you're a sixteenth of an inch out. By the time you're on the other side of the house, you're an inch out. Well, imagine from space being a sixteenth of an inch out where you would be. You'd be miles off your target. So space platforms stabilizing became an issue for the 90s, which they actually figured out how to do it, making that type of technology applicable this century. When you look at the combinations, it's pretty remarkable. One of the other places they looked at an experiment, you remember the shuttle experiment where they unraveled a big mylar reflector, and this was supposedly going to collect solar energy and reflect it so they could use this energy? Well, it just so happens within the patent solar uh, reflectors were also needed in the case of HARP because, of the, again, sending energy up, being able to concentrate it to a relatively small area and then bounce that energy through these reflectors to other parts of the planet where that energy could then be converted back to electrical energy. Now, why would that be important? Anytime you have a war, you need power sources. If you could literally do it wirelessly and get your energy without moving diesel fuel and all the stuff that you have to move logistically, that becomes pretty advantageous. So wireless transfer of energy became one of these very concepts. Interestingly enough, during the Hickel administration, when he was governor of Alaska, uh, Glenn Olds, one of his, um, I believe he was Commissioner of Commerce at the time, actually had this concept of wireless transfer of energy for remote places in Alaska. So these concepts aren't new. They're just being revisited in light of new technology. Um, HARP happens to present um, a bit of that technology uh, as well. Over the years, HARP has created, you know, quite a lot of controversy. In fact, um, you know, when you look on, if you do a search under HARP, H-A-A-R-P, on the Internet, you'll find thousands and thousands of sources and documents and materials, some of it 
pretty outrageous, quite frankly, and some of it right on target. Um, like any issue, uh, HARP is no exception. It draws a, a lot of controversy, draws a, a lot of misinformation to the debate as well. You know, this video was prepared to give a summation of the technology, but I recommend highly that people take a look. Get the book from your local library, Angels Don't Play This Harp. There's over 350 sources cited in that book that validate all the things that we've covered today. Take a look. When you're looking at these kinds of issues, big issues that can literally change the face of the planet, um, look deeper. Make sure that the facts are there. Make sure the information is there. But then get that information to those that can make a difference, whether it's your local political leadership coming out of your own states and your own countries. The fact of the matter is these technologies have to be um, engaged in the true light of day. We can't allow militaries to advance technologies that have these kinds of implications for the planet, for our health, for our environment. You know, if we're really to be stewards of this planet, it requires real action. Each of us can do something within our spheres of influence to make a difference, whether it's this issue or any of the other issues we cover in this series. The fact of the matter is people make the difference. People make things change. And we need to engage the processes and do exactly that. And let's let our technology serve us in the 21st century as man uh, intends it to do and not create just another situation that we have to clean up in the next century. Thanks for being with me. it'd be a heck of a lot easier, <laughs> just so long as I'm the dictator. <laughs> and knowledge is power. That's why you need the Basic Research Library CD from the American Voice now. This CD contains the Federalist Papers, which are the definitive writings illustrating the intent of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which read like a crystal ball to everything gone wrong concerning the present-day Constitution. This CD also contains Bovier's Law Dictionary and the Uniform Commercial Code. 
Plus, the inaugural speeches of the U.S. presidents, the U.N. Charter, NAFTA, Hitler's Mein Kampf, the full Communist Manifesto, the Patriot Act 1 and 2, the model anti-bioterrorism law, the Homeland Security Bill, the FBI's Project Medigo, and too much more to mention here. The CD contains over a thousand files. To order your CD, go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call us at 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information. great 1974 film, The Godfather 2. There's a scene about halfway through where Hyman Roth and Michael Corleone and all the American gangsters are gathered on a patio in Havana. And it's Hyman Roth's 67th birthday. And he's giving a slice of the cake each gangster. He's got Louie from Chicago, you run the Copacabana. Frankie, you get the prostitutes. He's dividing up the island among all the American gangsters. And appropriately enough, the birthday cake has the outline of Cuba on it. So he's giving him a slice of Cuba. And while Hyman Roth is doing this, he says, isn't it great to be in a country with a government that respects private enterprise? And that's how media policies have been done in the United States for the past 50 years. And it's increasingly in the last 20 years. Extraordinarily powerful lobbyists duke it out behind closed doors for the biggest slice of the cake. The public knows nothing about it. It doesn't participate. And that's the problem we Media is the nervous system of a democracy. If it's not functioning well, the democracy can't function. We're heading toward an election where most people are never going to be in a room with Kerry or Bush. What they learn about the candidates will be what the media shows them or tells them, decides not to show, not to tell. People are faced with critical choices about the future of the country when they go into the voting booth. And I go in, and I have been, through the course of a campaign cycle, subject to false, distorted caricaturing. And I may not even know where it's coming from, because often there's an echo effect off places like cable and like radio. And those uh, wrong pieces of information are repeated and repeated. By the time it reaches me, I don't even know what the source was. This is the environment we're living in, and it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's fundamentally undermining democracy, which is based on knowing some good and solid information so I can make an informed choice. When you see the properties Rupert Murdoch owns around the world, the strong conservative point of view that those properties often reflect, it's different than ABC or CBS or NBC. Sure, they reflect a point of view, but not nearly as strong and not nearly as consistently from one ideological perspective. Murdoch actually bought the station in 1985 and actually left us alone for at least the first three years of his ownership, partly because we were so successful and prosperous uh, that there was no reason to uh, monkey with us. At WTTG, our success insulated us to a certain degree. And it was kind of like being in an office and seeing people come down with the flu around you. We knew the flu eventually might reach us, uh, but we were hoping if we took enough vitamins that we'd never catch the flu. It was clear during those years that Murdoch, who had absolutely adored Ronald Reagan, adored him, um, 
really had a lot of and a lot of admiration for the group of Republicans that controlled Congress and, and in Washington, certainly on Capitol Hill. We received an order from one of Murdoch's uh, apparatchiks, if you will, that we should cut away from our newscast and start carrying a fawning tribute to Ronald Reagan that was airing at the Republican convention. Uh, we were stunned uh, because up until that point, we were allowed to do legitimate news. And suddenly we were ordered from the top to carry propaganda, carry Republican right-wing propaganda. It was a cultural uh, underpinning to what Murdoch wanted. Uh, race issues, AIDS, uh, I constantly remember complaints that there was too much being done on AIDS. He also couldn't stand the Kennedys. Ted Kennedy who was a longtime opponent of Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and, and one uh, a celebrated occasion, we were ordered to run a long, uncut piece from a current affair uh, that was uh, rehashing the whole matter of uh, Chappaquiddick. It had zero news value. We were told you had to run thing uncut. You could not even edit it down and just run a snippet of it. Uh, I think they evolved uh, in later years uh, especially after Roger Ailes took over and, and really got the uh, Fox News Channel up and running into a far more sophisticated kind of operation. What we saw in my era was, was really the, the birth of this sort of thing and the roots of what came later. I've heard directly from folks uh, both as correspondents and as bookers who've expressed very great reservations, uh, almost uh, as if they're being monitored by a Stalinist system, uh, afraid to be seen talking to the wrong person or uh, having the wrong kind of email exchange. It's very much a, an environment of fear. It was made very clear to us that our activities were being monitored, and if someone wasn't watching it live, they were at least recording it, and they would review it after the fact to see what we did. We weren't necessarily, as it was told to us, a news gathering organization so much as we were a proponent of a point of view. I'd been warned by people. Um, there were a number of people who pulled me inside and said, look, you know, I don't know. I mean, I know that you want to work and I know that you need a job, but you might want to think twice about taking this job because really it is a very conservative news network. Now that I've learned somebody writing a Fox News channel, I guess I should be doing stand in the clubs. I suspect your research has discovered the memoranda that were written by former Fox employees, which were written by John Moody and by Roger uh, in terms of setting the top of the day. Uh, the message of the day is a very political uh, device. There was nothing covert about the way uh, the managing editors in New York or Washington operated. They made it perfectly clear what they expected from us. Every morning there was a detailed uh, list of subjects to talk about not talk about. They were just actually issuing edicts to the reporters to control what they could say and how they could say it.
when headquarters sent a memo every morning and said, we want to touch on the following issues, we want to cover the following stories, we want to do them in this particular way, our job and our objective then was to execute the plan. The real revolutionary breakthrough of Fox has been it's eliminated journalism. I mean, that's the thing to understand. What Fox News Channel has done is it's stripped out any notion of journalism as we've traditionally understood it from its product. There is no journalism at the Fox News Channel. The techniques of poll, odd polling and odd graphics of Democrats and weird banners in the lower third of your screen. These are all pretty sophisticated techniques, and they work in collaboration with the most genius marketing slogan in history, which is fair and balanced. Graphics are always moving in the background. They've sort of pioneered the use of the American flag as, as, as an icon of your, your, your news broadcast. Probably 1999, I created the Fox News Alert. We were striving to accomplish a sense of urgency. Urgency in a sense that what was about to be delivered after the Fox News alert was very important, quote unquote shocking news, specifically Columbine and all the other important news stories of that time. But now, looking back, now that I'm not there, I find it interesting that I've seen the Fox News alert used for stories like Benefer, J-Lo and Ben's relationship. I mean, this compared to a school shooting, and there's really no relationship to me. And I don't understand why, based on what we originally created it for, uh, why they would choose to use it for a story like that. Because the sound and the visual is associated or originally was associated with things that were much more important. They deliberately blur it, and I find it, I find it very hard to believe, you know, there's no separation between Bill O'Reilly, the interviewer, and Bill O'Reilly with his talking points. I mean, there's just no separation at all. It's very hard on Fox News to separate news from commentary because it all blends together. That's what makes it so ridiculous, that slogan, we report, you decide, because there's no TV news channel in history that's ever reported less. For example, a Brit Hume newscast, um, which is presented as a newscast, um, I think you you see a lot of attitude and opinion, uh, both from the anchor and from the reports. Fox blurs the line between news and commentary all over the place, and we are to believe that Brit Hume is the anchor of a news outlet. He doesn't bring strong politics to it. He just happens to anchor the newscast like Peter Jennings. On Sundays, Brit Hume turns into a rather caustic right-wing uh, pundit. Look, this goes to Murdoch, too. He doesn't believe in objectivity. He doesn't believe he has contempt for journalism, I think. I mean, they want all news to be a matter of opinion. Opinion can't be proven false. And I think that's very dangerous because if people don't have a set of facts that they can agree on, I think it's difficult to reach a consensus on, you know, what's correct public policy. It wasn't so much uh, a scripted design that promoted the off-the-cuff ad-libs that you see so often on Fox News Channel. It was sort of a reinforcement.
Any ad lib that made the Democrats look stupid and made the Republicans look smart would get an attaboy, a, a pat on the back, a wink or a nod. Other journalists use phrases like some people say or officials say when they're trying to insert anonymously information in a story that sort of advances the storyline. Fox does it in a different way. Some people say is Fox's cue that I'm pretending to be an anchor, so I can't say this is my opinion or this is Roger Ailes' opinion, but some people say. Journalistically, it's a very peculiar technique because the idea behind journalism is that you're sourcing who you're referring to. This is just sort of a clever way of, of inserting political opinion when you know it probably shouldn't be there. I was given a folder, a little binder that had the names of all the Fox News consultants, you know, the people who were paid to come on the air to give their opinions. To be a Fox News contributor means you're under contract and you're getting paid a set amount. My services were in great demand in December of uh, 2001. The contract expired in January of 2003. And the first thing that I noticed was that I recognized all of the conservatives who were in the roster. Um, they were very well-known people who would come from, you know, talk radio or from some sort of political background. Um, and so I knew all of those people, and they were very, very strong people. I, I came in and was always, you know, I was going to call it as I saw it. For example, uh, the edict came down apparently to stop referring to suicide bombings in Israel as suicide bombings, to call them homicide bombings. I, mean, I thought that was stupid, and I continue to call them suicide bombings because every bombing that kills someone is a homicide bombing. But when I looked at the liberal roster, um, there was only one person's name who I recognized, which I recognized, and that was Bob Shrum, who is a very well-known speechwriter and political consultant in Washington. The other ones, though, people I'd never heard of. My entire background was in politics and political journalism, so I knew pretty much all the players in D.C., and I'd never heard of these people. The question came up about the ability of the United States to fight two wars simultaneously. And you know, Sean Hannity, being the you know, right-wing cheerleader that he is, was just you know, incensed that I was, had the temerity to suggest that we couldn't. Facts don't seem to have uh, any effect upon him. What was unusual is it was after that appearance that even though I was under contract to Fox for another uh, eight weeks, roughly, and they stopped using me. When Richard Clark emerged, it was obvious this was a danger to the administration because he had worked at the highest echelons of the Bush administration. And it was almost like Fox News was working off of the playbook coming out of the White House, that he had to be torn down. He had to be turned into a Democrat, a liberal, a carry guy. See, one of the things that Fox does and conservatives do is they don't have to win every argument. But if they can muddy the argument enough, if they can turn it into a draw, that to them is a victory because it denies the other side a victory. They launched a major smear campaign. In some ways, it worked. And it was just attack politics on a TV channel.
Usually you leave attack politics to a political campaign. They'll try to put on uh, the appearance of being balanced, but really kind of a mismatch. You'll have a Hannity and Combs show where Hannity is a really a good-looking, clean-cut, all-American kind of guy, and, and his counterpart is a little squirrely-looking, frankly. And you kind of say, he's the liberal? Well, maybe he's not so smart after all. And, and, and it sends a subtle message, I think. A lot of the times, the liberals that they get to appear on are either, uh, you know, faux liberals, like I would use Susan Estridge as an example of that, a person who was brought on who essentially agrees with the person on the right in a lot of cases, or they would just bring on people who were very weak, you know, people who were not well-known people. Even the people who are uh, supposedly liberal in those panel discussions, they know that uh, to change the guests and the other hosts too forcefully um, will special reports, one-on-one -on -one interviews. They're once a day. We studied 25 weeks of the one-on-one -on -one guests who appeared on special reports from late June through mid-December of 2003. Republicans appeared five times as often as Democrats on one-on-one -on -one newsmaker interviews. That means that Republicans made up 83% of the partisan guests, while Democrats made up just 17%. In addition, the few Democrats that were interviewed for the show tended to be centrist and conservative Democrats, often brought on to affirm Bush administration policies. So what does this all mean? Well, if Fox were the bastion of fairness and balance that it claims to be, we'd see a lot more points in this prominent interview segment on the network's most prestigious show. Instead, the numbers indicate that Brit Hume and Special Report choose their guests based on political considerations rather than news judgment. Like criticism of Fox News isn't that it's a conservative channel. It's the consumer fraud of fair and balanced. It's nothing of the sort. You pitch a story in any given uh, editorial meeting that didn't meet the criteria that they had explained to you and you got a thumbs down. Fox News Channel's uh, stated uh, practice was to embarrass, humiliate, challenge, or, uh, or, or disrupt whatever uh, Jesse Jackson and whatever Jesse Jackson did. We were told by our bureau chief on many occasions that the Reverend Jesse Jackson was one of our targets. Anything we could do or say that would embarrass him, humiliate him, discredit him, we were encouraged to find the information and we were encouraged to report the information. Ronald Reagan's 90th birthday. For Fox News Channel viewers, though, as I was instructed, this was something akin to a holy day. This was Ronald Reagan's birthday. And so my assignment was to go to the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, and to do live shots from uh, before dawn until, uh, until dark uh, to report on Ronald Reagan's birthday. That was pretty much the sort of vague, broad-based assignment that I had that day.
It wasn't anything specific until they saw my first three or four live shots early in the morning, and uh, Mr. Moody called in to say, what is he doing out there? Apparently, my live shots weren't celebratory enough. You know, there was a, a class of, uh, of fourth graders who came to the library that day to take the tour. Um, and uh, they were lined up, and they sang happy birthday uh, to you. But that was pretty much the extent of the celebration. There weren't very many people at the presidential library. There wasn't a celebration of any organ in any organized way going on. And I was, frankly, at a bit of a loss as to what to say or do to make it seem like there was a big celebration on Ronald Reagan's birthday. So I got in trouble for that one. I got in big trouble for that one. In fact, I was suspended. What you will see, of course, is intensive discussion about what we call the wedge issues. You'll hear, you know, uh, affirmative action. You'll hear abortion. You'll hear certainly gay rights. Uh, God in, in the separation of church and state issues will be on television every single day. Their job, which is what the right-wing Republicans want to do, is to divide America up, ignore the important economic, health care, environmental issues, and they do that extremely successfully. They did start up on gay marriage, but I think that they got sort of blindsided. They all of a sudden couldn't show the usual footage they used to show, because they used to love to show the footage, of course, the parades and the black leather and, you know, the drag queens. Then they had, you know, very kind of normal-looking, dumpy, middle-aged couples getting married and smooching on the steps of City Hall. So I've noticed a certain kind of uh, zest going out of the gay marriage thing. But that the opposite, uh, where they picked up the slack, is on anything to do with religion, anything to do with the Ten Commandments, anything to do with God. They're going to push God very, very hard, particularly going up into Bush's re-election. Christian fundamentalist movement is one that believes in we're right, you're wrong, no matter what. And I saw a lot of that at Fox. We're right, you're wrong, no matter what. The O'Reilly Factor is probably the perfect example of everything that's wrong with Fox News Channel. You have stories that are selected primarily to upset liberals and, and Democrats and prop up the Republican Party. You have a hostility towards guests that disagree with the host. And you have a host who, in service of his conservative politics, will, will distort facts, will misrepresent things, and uh, will, in some cases, just fabricate. Jeremy Glick is the son of a, a Port Authority worker who died in, at 9-11, and he had signed an anti-war petition, and O'Reilly had to have him on. And they were so persistent about getting me on the O'Reilly show, because they found out that I was on the advisory board and signed a statement that was against the war, and then I was directly impacted by 9-11. The success that I had on the O'Reilly show had to do, obviously, with preparation in my life and that political political work in my life, but it also had to do with just before, just practice and preparation. What I did, and it was just someone gave me a bunch of 
strategies. What I did is I taped the shows. I had somebody tape the shows for a couple weeks. And what I did is I took a stopwatch that I used to use for running sprints in high school, and I would see when he has a hostile a guest where he knows that he's going to anticipate profound disagreement, and I would time how long it takes for him to cut them off. I said, I'm shocked that you're surprised, and basically just made the only point I wanted to make. And it was extremely intimidating sitting down in the studio because he's really tall, and like, dude, he lords over you, and Jeremy was pretty, pretty cool during it, uh, but and he was giving his political views, which were very to the left of O'Reilly's. So I don't really care what you think politically, and I said obviously you do care because a you brought me on the show, and b I told him that he uses 9/11 and sympathy with the 9/11 families and the and the lives lost to rationalize his narrow right wing agenda. And it's unfair for O'Reilly to evoke both my mom and my father in the interview, especially when I wasn't. You know, I mean, she is, my mom is a grieving widow for a prematurely and a violent, horrific turn in their lives. My dad was only 55. He was, they were working people, with, you know, working class, middle class. Like, they were not retiring for a while, they, you know, and their life is basically destroyed. You know, their life together is destroyed and destroyed in circumstances that I wouldn't wish on uh, my worst enemies, including Bill O'Reilly. You see him gesturing to security guards. Then came the after film performance. After they're off the air, he says to the kids on the effect, get out of my studio before I fucking tear you to pieces. So Jeremy, and I've talked to him since, went, actually went to the green room to get a cup of coffee. And the executive producer and the assistant encouraged me to leave the building because they were, quote, concerned that if O'Reilly ran into me in the hallway, he would end up in jail. Next day, I just turned on and watched the, the follow-up and saw my views totally distorted. Next thing I know, I was saying Bush plan 9-11. That paints me as, as a fringe conspiracy nut. This kid said nothing, nothing in the, the uh, original interview with O'Reilly about uh, President Bush and his father, Bush the Elder, orchestrating the attack on their own country. He said nothing of that sort. Blick said, can I sue him? And so I called the lawyer who was in my case of Fox versus Dutton and Franken. He says, well, the kid has to prove that O'Reilly knew he was lying. And O'Reilly is so crazy, he lies so pathologically, that it's harder to prove that O'Reilly knew he was lying. So oddly enough, if someone has a record of crazily lying, <laughs> it is harder to sue them for defamation.
Many of the themes that are promoted on the Fox News channel have to do with generating fear, whether that's fear of immigration, a fear of sexual difference, a fear of racial difference. When you pander to fear, it's a great motivator and organizer. You've got to keep people alarmed. That they really love this sense of fear and danger, even when it's not there. And so when something is actually dangerous, as some things are, uh, they go completely overboard. And all sense of perspective is lost. So that anthrax, which I guess affected four or five people adversely, no question about it, is far more dangerous than, you know, the poisoning of our air. The motivator is fear. And then the payoff is, you know, we're going to go out and kill the bad guys. And, you know, it's a very simple black and white world that they uh, paint and portray. And Terrorism has become the all-purpose fear weapon because now everything is converted into terrorism. And, of course, if you have a constant sense of unease, then you're going to look to the government to protect you. You're going to look to strong government. There are these enemy out there, it's an ill-defined enemy, but as long as we're fighting them and we're killing them and he's looking presidential, then nothing else again is discussed. What was interesting is in the climate of the Bush administration that much of that fear, the emotion, uh, was purposely misdirected by the right wing uh, into uh, the war in Iraq. The type of coverage Fox offers, and all of them offer, but Fox is probably the most pristine version, is completely consistent with Bush's, um, with, with the strategy of the Bush administration, A, to uh, prevent discussion of things that are not going well, like, for instance, the economy or the Medicare bill. There's no doubt that the war against Iraq, a country that did not attack us, could only proceed based on fear. The first rule of being a great propaganda system, and why our system is vastly superior to anything in the old Soviet Union, is not that people think they're being subject to propaganda. If people don't think that, they aren't looking for that, they're much easier to propagandize. And that's the genius of our media system, is a system of ideology, of control, compared to an authoritarian system. Fox has made a decision uh, to present the Iraq War as a success, and as an ongoing success. The senior producer told the two or three writers for her news hour, she told us, now just keep in mind it's all good. This is such a fair and balanced issue. Keep it positive. We've got to emphasize all the good that we're doing. She at that point made a reference to rebuilding schools, bringing democracy to Iraq. And then she said, see, big progress. Yoo-hoo for us. Things were actually at that point going quite badly. Many more American soldiers were dying each day, and God knows how many Iraqis. The people survey is interesting because you were looking at questions of, of basic true-false kind of factual nature. Did we find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? These are very simple questions with very simple answers, and what the survey found was that the more likely you were to watch Fox News Channel, the more likely you were to have completely incorrect assumptions about these things.
all the research shows a very high correlation in the case of Fox News uh, with people watching it uh, with having a very confused notion of the world on one hand, especially of foreign policy in the Middle East, and also being strongly supportive of the government in power. And this is an extraordinarily disturbing trend for the media. I mean, for any self-respecting journalist, if you're told the more people consume your media, the, the less they'll know about the subject and the more they'll support government policy. And that's, that's exactly the worst thing any journalist would ever want to hear or should want to hear. In terms of Fox overall, I think we have got to appreciate, and when we look at them, is to understand that this is an adjunct of the Republican Party. What Fox specializes in is punditry, basically getting marching orders from the Republican National Committee or some political operative, and then having people pontificate about it, have guests come on and talk about it, have pseudo-experts come on and, and discuss it. Their main allegiances, I'm talking about the people at the top, is to the Republican Party. Murdoch is, is absolutely to his core uh, a partisan, and uh, he makes no secret about that. So First person who made the call to say that George W. Bush had been elected President of the United States was the person who was in charge of Fox News's election analysis division, the people that crunch the exit polling numbers. That person was a gentleman named John Ellis, and he is George W. Bush's first cousin. At around two in the morning on election night, the, a new set of data had come in, and it was complex data with, from precincts all over Florida. The proper answer in analyzing that data unquestionably was you couldn't tell. It was too close to call. There was simply no clear winner. Instead, John Ellis called it as a clear win for George Bush. Fox News then interrupted its ongoing election coverage and announced that George Bush had been elected President of the United States. Now, what's significant about that is not the intervention of the President's cousin to declare his relative the new President of the United States. It was the fact that within minutes, ABC, NBC, CBS also fell right in line calling Bush as the winner. There's no way that they could have crunched the data in that time to come to that conclusion. In fact, quite the opposite. They should have come to the conclusion which Associated Press came to, which was that you couldn't make a call. When Fox made the call that Bush had won and the other networks followed on, that created the perception that Bush was the winner. In fact, he wasn't. But that perception was what really held for the next 37 days. And I would suggest to you that that call on election night had more to do with making George Bush president than any recount or ballot design issue. In the old Soviet Union, you used to hear about the party line shifting 180 degrees watching Fox News at the end of Clinton where it was all attack mode, where they were just vicious watchdogs. And then Bush takes power and they're like little lap dogs. It was like night and day and it's a party line shift. They will give you 
the, the almost the full Bush stump speech, no matter where it is, no matter how many times they've shown it, got cut live to these campaign rallies as if there was going to be real news in them, as if Bush was going to say anything earth-shattering. Fox portrays his every action as a heroic move, as a you know something dramatic and significant. I imagine it's pretty hard for the Fox producers. Some days George Bush doesn't do anything interesting, and yet they've got to find something that makes him heroic that day. Most people just started waking up and saying, oh, you mean we don't have the fairness doctrine anymore? I can't tell you how many times when I was a political candidate running for office, I would have somebody come up to me on the street and say, now I saw your opponent on TV the other day. Aren't they supposed to give you equal time? And I didn't even know for years that we lost that in the Reagan era, that for years we haven't had the ability to expect both sides to be adequately covered. Clearly, on the Republican side, what we do know is that for years they have coordinated what they call uh, their message of the day. So you'll hear on the floor of the House, you'll hear on Rush Limbaugh, you'll hear on uh, Fox and Rupert Murdoch's network the issue of the day, which they will pound away at which then creates the echo chamber, which resonates throughout America. You see a picture of George Bush, you expect to see, hear organ music that would come out of a church swelling, the, the backlit head, you know, the, the Madonna look, and then a picture of John Kerry flashes, and you hear the, the devil's voice, this is the devil, he is evil. Every week there's so many ways you can play the economic story. At Fox News, it's only the upbeat. They select statistics that prove the economy is moving up, and thank God for President Bush for doing it. When the market goes down, one of the things you often hear is the market is worried about a carry victory. And how they know that the market went down because everybody had carry on their mind as opposed to everyone was worried about interest rates or everyone looked at the earnings figures and thought they weren't as good as projected. But they, they, they love to pretend that they're Karnak the Magnificent. They can read the mind of the market. What makes Murdoch particularly dangerous is that he's foremost uh, a politician. And he will use his immense media power to shape the content, especially the news, that furthers his interests and those of his uh, allies including uh, the conservative Republican community. After all, Fox News is nothing more than a 24-7 uh, political ad for the GOP. MSNBC, I worked as a senior producer on the Donahue, Phil Donahue primetime show. But at MSNBC, from the beginning, they were saying to us, we have to be balanced. And for months, they were telling Phil, giving him instructions not to be too confrontational. Don't be too partisan. Don't be too angry. You have to be balanced. Now, by the end of our tenure at uh, Donahue Show with MSNBC, balance wasn't enough. And this is the Fox effect. They mandated that any time we had, if we had two uh, left-wing guests, we had to have three right-wing guests. If we had one anti-war guest, we had to have two pro-war guests. And that's how we ended the show. So we're like trying to outfox Fox. You cannot outfox Fox. But MSNBC and the others have tried. CNBC has tried to outfox Fox. Since the corporate structures 
uh, and corporate ownership of the other channels does not allow anyone to counter-program against Fox, you know, in television, the inclination is imitation. It's influencing its competitors. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, uh, MSNBC hired Joe Scarborough. That's why CNN in, in recent weeks has taken to reporting pretty much anything the Bush White House tells it to report. There is a sense now that there is money in the flag, and Fox knows that, and its competitors know that Fox is on to something. Today, news business is geared toward entertainment. It's geared toward, in some cases, propaganda. It's geared toward, ultimately, the bottom line of a big corporation that owns the station, that owns the news operation. It's called the news business for a reason. Uh, it is news, but it's a business. They don't like to spend money doing serious stories. They like to do cheap, easy stories that uh, will get a gut reaction. The thing I think that distresses me more than anything else is that a lot of the news content is not coming straight out of the newsrooms, particularly in television, um, but out of the promotion department. It's expensive to spend time exploring the issues. It's cheap, and everything now is a question of money. If you go to the National Association of Black Journalists, or you go to the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, or you talk to Asian American journalists who are on air, you talk to Native American journalists, you're seeing a diminution in the number of journalists that are locally based. Because in order to save money, and in order to get economies of scale and scope, a lot of the broadcasters are shrinking their employee, employee pool, and they're shrinking them in the news sector, sectors of their stations. So a lot of the young, vibrant people who are getting experience as on-air talent in small towns are seeing those opportunities increasingly diminish. When you let a small number of companies have this much concentrated power, they will always abuse it. It's simply unacceptable in a free society. And if you don't change the system, we can be having this conversation for the next 50 years. We'll be talking about Rupert Murdoch III. Just as healthcare and the economy um, and the environment are political issues that people are familiar with, corporate control over the media is also a major political issue. When you have one network that is so powerful and so intent upon warping the dialogue, it limits that discourse. It actually influences it to be a narrower discourse. And that's what I think citizens ought to be up in arms about. We can't accept this anymore. If we do accept it, we are handing on to our children and our grandchildren a lesser democracy than we inherited. And that's the one thing we don't have a right to do. It's ironic that it's been, what, 30 years since Patty Chayefsky wrote Network. But I really believe that those prophetic words that were spoken by Peter Finch when he finally got out of the chair and said, it's time Go to the window, shake your fist, and say, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I think those are resonant words today. 
I think people are genuinely upset. Get off your rear end and become an activist. And if you see things that are biased, complain to the outlet and say you won't be watching it anymore. Content has to change. Power has to shift. And I think the only way we can shift power is the only way we've ever been able to shift power, by directly confronting those who hold it and taking it back. Policies have been made behind closed doors by very powerful special interests without any public involvement or participation. And what we've learned in the last few years is when the public gets aware of this and they start organizing, we can change these policies and we can make a system that actually responds to the needs of the people of this country. America's digital destiny is hanging in the balance now. With the right activism, public outcry, we can shape a media environment so that in every community there are channels that actually serve the public interest. If you are a citizen at home right now, when you turn on talk radio, all you hear is one right-wing nut or another right-wing nut, why don't you go to the radio station and say, I'm sick and tired of this. There are progressive voices out there. We want a balance. If a Fox TV station in, in your town is broadcasting reports that you know to be inaccurate, that you know to be warping the news, you as citizens have power. Groups like Code Pink and others have actually demonstrated outside television stations and have made noise about it. We need to basically play the Paul Revere role to, uh, you know, kind of ride out into the night alerting people that uh, there's something bad going on here and, and something needs to be done about it. Here's what I'd love to have happen. Family from Nebraska goes to Washington for the family vacation. We're going to visit the Air and Space Museum. We're going to visit the mall. We're going to visit the Vietnam Memorial. And we're going to visit the FCC see a commissioner or two to tell them about what we care about. When that happens, you might start to see a little more attention. But you know, it ain't going to happen if you don't try it. We can actually win here. The whole strength of the system has been based on people being apathetic and not thinking they could do anything about it. As soon as we rise up, it collapses like a house of cards. That's the extraordinary development of the last two years. It is not an issue of the right or the left. It is a populist issue about people finally saying it's their democracy and they aren't going to let five companies control the airways for corporate convenience at the expense of public necessity. I come from a community in the, in the state of Maine that's mostly uh, fishing towns, small coastal communities, and uh, for many years we were served by one radio station that everybody listened to. I mean, it was local radio. Every time I debated an opponent when I was running for office, everybody would tune it in in their cars or their home radio, and they would hear what we were feeling differently about. And when Clear Channel bought it, that was the end. You couldn't even count on somebody looking out the window and telling you if it was a good day or a bad day or if the fog was coming in. But what was really interesting to me was that people got so angry, there was a local group that organized and attempted to get a low-power FM radio license. Uh, they had a hard-fought battle. Uh, Clear Channel opposed them, and they actually won, and now there is a little radio station operated out of a garage in that town. All volunteers, anybody can play the music that they want, but at 5 o'clock every day, they tune in to the dialogue of what's going on in that community.
what we've been doing over the last decade is to create this alternative infrastructure so that we now have an online audience of 10,000 unique visitors per day to our homepage, plus the over-the-air audience of our new uh, low-power FM radio station. And very soon, we're going to have public access TV in this community. So we're, we've got three legs of a, of a stool here of an alternative media infrastructure that gives us a means of communicating among ourselves and not just relying on the occasional letter to the editor in the corporate newspaper or almost no coverage in uh, the broadcast media because they're all owned by Clear Channel and, and uh, Sinclair or Fox. When the Youth Media Council started, one of our first projects was to um, recruit unorganized youth of color, teenagers, and have them study the Fox affiliate station in the Bay Area. When we did the study, we were able to do an editorial meeting. It was the first time in probably 10 or 15 years that a constituency group locally had actually ever came and demanded anything from them. They just get to do whatever they want. Nobody cares. Nobody understands that they can demand anything. So it was a pretty momentous moment for us, you know, to, to both demand something and get it from a Fox affiliate, but also to be one of the first, you know, folks to come forward. And that's, that's something that I think is a, is a trend that we're trying to start now. Marginalized people don't have any concept that they can go to an editor in groups and demand something.
have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hello, Melody. Crazy day in the markets. A wild and mm-hmm. a wild and wooly day. Uh, gold sort of hung in there a little bit. You have gold down 580 right now. Five dollars and eighty cents at eleven sixty-two. 
on the uh, New York spot. You have silver down eight cents at fifteen seventy-five. Platinum was down eighteen at eleven thirty-two. Palladium got hammered the most, down twenty at eight oh two. And the biggest cause of that is the U.S. dollar trading at 98.63, 98.63 up 0.97. And of course, that had a big impact on oil, down 1.32 at 48.68. Paper markets today, the, the Dow also got a little bit of a Dropped in the last half hour of trading, uh, 328 to the downside, 332 as it's correcting, down 332, 17,663. The Nasdaq down 82 at 48.59. The S&P down 35 at 2,044. So much for that Nasdaq being glorified at over five thousand but uh, that's just my opinion and um, so you also have the um, the euro is trading down 1.42 at 107 and even the 10-year pulled back 0.07 at 2.13 percent foreign markets were down overnight Uh, Germany wasn't down one percent London was down big two and a half percent um the Nikkei and uh, the Hang Seng, they were all not they were all down not quite a full point or a full percentage. So the big one was London down two and a half percent at sixty seven oh two, down almost hundred and seventy points. So um it's fluttering around the world, uh, as far as the markets and uh you know, it just, you know, everybody talks about, we feel everything is being, everything is teetering. Everybody is waiting for, you know, something to happen. Because um, these markets are certainly, uh, sometimes there's just no rhyme and reason for a lot of these things. And, of course, the biggest talk has been Apple, 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 and their stupid watch um, that people stand in line for. Even that was down over 1.5% today. Um, so, and, you know, the big numbers, GE were debt was down, Citigroup was down almost 3%, Microsoft was down one and a half, even Google was down over 2%. So, uh, it looks like, uh, they didn't share the losses, uh, or the losses were shared with everyone today, Al. Well, that's the idea behind much of what happens here. I was mentioned earlier, where I was reading an article that dealt with George Soros and a theory of reflexivity. Which, I'm, which I would be surprised if most listeners know anything about. I didn't before I started reading the article. But one of the things that makes clear to me, one of the things I understand for the first time reading this, we have a system that seeks to share responsibility. All right, They want to distribute the risk. And we see ad, we see investment after investment and system after system. They want to distribute the risk of investments among everybody. And that's why they took the subprime subprime mortgages and sliced and diced them and included them in chunks. Chunks of each mortgage were essentially included in different bonds, and the bonds became mortgage-backed securities. And it turned out they were all nonsense, and they were they ultimately described them as toxic assets, and they had to get rid of them and hide them in the Federal Reserve. But the point I'm trying to get to is they are constantly trying to distribute the risk as far as possible. That's a fundamental theme in modern economics. 
in modern finance. Get somebody, and, and the idea is that if we all take $5 worth of risk, then they can move a billion dollars here, there, or whatever, and we'll all, if it goes south, you lose five, and I lose five, and everybody loses five. Well, the problem is they keep on getting five, and five, and five, and five, and pretty soon you are involved, you are at risk for an enormous fund. This goes to the concept of personal responsibility. What risk means is personal responsibility. If you invest in a particular stock or a bond or a precious metal, classic economics, classical economics means you must be personally responsible for whatever happens that investment. If you are smart and you invested in the right investment and it increases in value, then you get the profits. And if you were dumb and you invested in the wrong investment and the price falls precipitously, you have to take personal responsibility for that problem. What risk is all about is personal responsibility. But when they set up in modern economics, they try to divert us from that risk. They try to distribute the risk by creating things like derivatives, right? And they find ways to hedge. And they play all of this to get us away from personal responsibility. And the net result is it's possible for people in positions of power to make investments where the great unwashed the taxpayers, they wind up with the responsibility. This is where we get too big to fail. They are too big to fail, which means they can't be held responsible. And what I'm beginning to understand for the first time is how important it is to have a system an economic of investing, a fundamental principles, and a system for investing in markets where people have to be personally responsible for their investments. And they are trying to create a system where individuals don't have to be personally responsible, and it's dangerous. It may be something that I'm not explaining very clearly right this moment, but over the course of the next weeks or whatever, I'll get this down. I'll understand this better, and I'll be at a point where I can explain it more clearly, I believe. And I think the first insight is just to understand that what risk means originally is personal responsibility. And whenever... We have some investment scheme that seeks to distribute risk, right? It means we're going to give the risk to all the idiots out there. They won't get any of the profits. If the system works and they make money, that, that money goes to the, to the entities that are too big to fail. But if the investment fails, well, we'll give the failure to the great unwashed. And it changes the economy, it perverts the economy, the investments in particular, where the people that are making the biggest investments have no personal liability in the investment, or at least they have diminished liability in that investment because they've distributed the risk. I don't know if that makes any sense yet, Melody, but it will over the course of the next weeks, and uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, also by spreading that risk, as you say, it's the way they also can control the, you know, the the economies. Well, they control um, by not taking responsibility. They control the, well, but the bottom line that affects you and me is, wouldn't it, like, control the economy? I mean, it controls our jobs. It controls mm -hmm. what people mm -hmm. make. It controls um, it's the whole idea how it affects those that work and live for work for a living and so forth. 
It's the whole idea behind central planning. We have people in positions of power in the government, just as they did in the, in the former Soviet Union, who are deciding how to run this economy. They come in and they say, well, I've read a book on this, and I'm very intelligent, and i got a Ph.D., and therefore I get to run the controls, see? But the problem is they don't take personal responsibility for their decisions. If they screw up, a bunch of other people might go broke, but the government bureaucrats, the central planners, do not. They are exerting influence and even control without risk to themselves. And one of the implications from the article I read about uh, George Soros is he, he grasps this, and he has devised different strategies in a sense to deal with it. But he says this is the reality of the way the world works at this time, and as a result, he's, he is perhaps the single most successful investor in the world histories. Again, according to, uh, and I'm not praising George Soros, I'm not making any, I'm not, I'm not, advocating his morality or his system of values, per se, but you've got to give the devil his due. The guy has averaged 27% return on investment for the last 41 years. That's an extraordinary track record. Warren Buffett, according to the, the article I was reading, he's averaged about 25%. Right? And there is an implication in all that. This is a little offside. But <clears throat> if you see... Someone who comes up and offers you a deal where you can double your money in a month, and I'm aware of one that's going around right now, all right? you can double your money. All right? It's just I, it's, it's moving around. I know a friend who's going out to some meeting out in Arizona or something. You know, and it's just here's the, here's the reality. The best investors in the world <laughs> haven't been able to break the 30% per year mark. All right, I don't doubt they've had a year here and there when they made, where maybe they did. But long term, they can't get past the 30% return on investment per year. All right, not so far. So if somebody comes up and says, I got a deal for you, and you can double your money every 60, 90 days, that translates, if you double your money every, every 90 days, we're talking something like 400% return on investment. Warren Buffett is glad to get 25%. George Soros is glad to get 27%. It's about as good as it can be if they're offering you a deal that generates more than 25 27% per year. It can't be real. It can't be true. All right? So I don't know if that's helpful or useful information, but I think it should be. It gives you, okay, it, it, this is the max. And truth of the matter is average investor, he's happy. He's happy if he can get 8% a year. These guys did three times what the, uh, what the average investor did. <laughs> but nobody's coming out with a deal where you can double your money every 60, 90 days. It can't be real. It has to be a Ponzi scheme. What else, Melody? Oh, there's one we, Miles Franklin. Let me just time? say, let me just say this: uh, we do have a guest on today. We have Rob West. Yep. Uh, he's writing a book, The Banker's Web. It's about the LIBOR interest rate uh, fixing scandal, and uh, um, it always amazed me how little of an impact that that scandal had. Certainly, there are a few people maybe went to jail and fines were revoked on some of these, uh, you know, bigger uh, financial institutions. But truly, when you think about, you know, 
how that rate has been used in, in our everyday lives and, and through every loan that was created over this period of time. It's all based and it, it didn't it didn't seem to matter. And uh, or maybe it does matter, but it's just taken a little bit longer for it to make that difference. I mean, all those contracts, and we'll talk about Rob when he gets on, all those contracts, as far as you'd think they'd be null and void. <laughs> you know, and well, these are bonds. Are- these are, think of the, the number of derivatives that were yes. written. He has an 85-page book that he's put together, and I haven't read the book. I've only skimmed through the first 15, 20 pages. <clears throat> But if I'm understanding correctly, what he's arguing is this. There have already been six convictions by the Department of Justice against banks that were responsible, criminally liable, for setting the LIBOR rates. And what he says, if I'm understanding correctly, Bob or Robert can correct me when he gets on here, is that because there have already been these convictions, and nobody's talked about them, well, I won't say nobody, but it hasn't been big news. Banks have been found, yeah, you committed crimes. Well, these banks are still on the hook for whatever crimes under 18 U.S.C., eight, Title 18, United States Code, Section 3771, if I recall correctly. It's for victims of crimes, and you have an opportunity to go back after the banks and collect some of the money that you may have been defrauded out of. Now, he'll have an example that deals with a mortgage, for example, just a hypothetical. And it may be that over the course of a 30-year loan, because of LIBOR, you paid an extra $85, $90 a month on your mortgage. Well, he's arguing... We'll see. We'll find out for sure. But in my reading of the book... We don't want to give all the information away now. (laughs) Rob won't have anything to say. (laughs) He'll have plenty to say. He'll be able to explain this because the idea is if you've been robbed by LIBOR of $80, $90 a month for 30 years on your mortgage, you've been robbed the best part of $30,000. If I'm understanding his book correctly, you may have an opportunity to go back and claim that $30,000 loss and maybe collect it right, without having to actually sue in court. Well, he'll be coming up soon, so we'll be starting his interview at 20 minutes after uh, the hour. And uh, I worked with Rob for uh, several times a couple years ago. He's a good man and great, in, you know, he has a great company, the Financial Preservation Network. So uh, we'll be talking to him after the break. And um, there really wasn't that much going on in the news. Of course, Hillary was being uh, talking about all her emails, and uh, you know she's releasing a lot of those emails, except for the ones that she deleted. <laughs> and it's just like really, you know, she's a, Al. She's about as you know, Teflon as Mr. Clinton was, Bill yeah. Clinton was, and it doesn't seem that anything's going to stick. And really, there was a lot of uh, those folks who had their that used their own personal accounts. You had Colin Powell and. You know, a lot of those folks. But what was interesting, I thought, was the server. The server was actually, from what I understood, was created by her husband. And uh, it remains private. So I think that's a little bit different than just using a personal email account that goes through your, you know, the government and so forth and whatnot. I mean, this is a private server that uh, Bill Clinton and, and all the 
Nothing and why did they create that server? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes it sound almost like a conspiracy to obstruct justice. It's gonna, and that server is going to remain private. Yeah, but it's also an opportunity. It's like being able to transmit all of my telephone calls and email and whatever. We transmit them in a way where nobody can read them except the intended recipient. Um, And not only that nobody can read them, but they are subject to being destroyed, removed, whenever it's convenient to do so. And doing that constitutes obstruction of justice. You can almost bet, I can't tell you it's God's truth, but you can almost bet that Bill Clinton and Hillary said, we need a private communication system where if push comes to shove, I can talk to people, but if push comes to shove, we can delete my email where nobody can find out what was really said. And it it makes you. They can prove conspiracy, but it certainly sounds that there's grounds to suspect conspiracy. I mean, certainly when you're in those types of positions, you think you just pick up the telephone and talk to eliminate anything that is actually written on paper and is email considered a letter, a document. Um, Yeah, it is. So it's uh, you wonder why you would place yourself in that type of a situation, knowing it. Things are moving fast. And you don't have time to think, and you don't have time to write a letter by hand and put it in the mail. you got to contact somebody right now. Get to them now, because something is unfolding and you don't have time. So you've got to, you know. And it puts them in a difficult position. I can see, by, I can hear by the sound uh, that we are allegedly going into our break right now. Seems like premature breaking to me, but we'll get our clock synchronized in a moment. Melody and I will be back with our guest Rob West in just a couple of minutes. Please stay tuned. I'm Alfred Addis, Melody Cedarson, Financial Survival. Be right back. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today, or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. 
Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Thank you for joining us today, and I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Adisk, and we have our special guest today, Rob West, and uh, he's in the process of uh, writing a book, The Banker's Web, and it's all about the LIBOR, LIBOR interest rate fixing scandal that uh, was first addressed on and around 2012, and Rob has uh, continues five decades in the, finance, in the financial arena as co-founder of RME Advisors and the Financial Preservation Network. He's a senior financial strategist for both companies. RME is a financial education and research company that does not sell financial products. He's had a long career, and I want to welcome Rob to the program. Thank you, Melody. Can you hear me fine? Thank you. Oh, it's great to have you here. It's been a long time. It has. I was really, uh, really happy that we communicated here last week, and uh, Al, I um, also remember talking with you as well. So, uh, hello to you. Hello. How you doing, Rob? This is an interesting book that you've put together because it's not. If I'm understanding, I haven't read the whole 85 pages. I've only had an opportunity to skim over the first 15, 20 pages of the book. But if I'm understanding this correctly, this is at least laying the foundation for what may be a legal strategy to recover some excess payments that have been made on mortgages and car loans and any other kind of loan that you've paid, maybe not any other kind, but at least some kinds of loans that people have paid in on over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. Am I understanding this correctly? You're right on, and like Melody was saying before, um, in the, this LIBOR scandal has been, uh, and my research indicates it's been going on since 1991. And so uh, there's like a 22-year period there that um, the, the LIBOR fixing has affected not only loans, but the amount of money that you have in your savings account. <clears throat> it's also affecting your tax rate. And you might find this unusual, but <clears throat> the more I got involved with the research, then, and you were talking a little bit a little while ago there, I think Al or Melody was about derivatives. 
just in that arena, the effect of LIBOR on in the derivative market seems to affect 500 to 800 trillion dollars in transactions. For what? Various things, including a number of municipalities issue tax-free municipal bonds. Cheaper for them to introduce a bond on a variable rate, but that's also risky. Well, the bankers have made arrangements to back up those transactions with derivative measures that would allow them to issue a variable rate in the idea that the derivative contract, if it goes against the municipality later on, then the bankers would pick up the difference. Well, some of them didn't work out so well. Not only have I found that the FDIC, the uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, but also the National Credit Union Administration, have all sued after the Department of Justice and the FBI have obtained these six criminal convictions. So what I'm I'm very sure I'm, I'm going to get down to here, even if you own property outright without a mortgage, your taxes could have been affected because of a negative reflection of having a derivative uh, take advantage of the municipal bond market, of which they have no choice but to take those mistakes and pass them along to everybody in the, in, in the terms of higher taxes. So, and you, by uh, mistakes, by mistakes, you mean artificially high interest rates. Right. Well, if they were forced to hit, like the city of Baltimore had a situation like that, and they were named in one of the suits I looked up, um, subject to award money because when the interest rate credit default swaps and that don't work as they intend them, then they have to buy them back and unwind the deal. So that can create a financial loss for the municipality just in the unwinding effect. But, you know, most people think um, the mortgage arena is the most affected. And right along behind that, the amount of money in student loans now exceeds credit card debt. But any financial transaction that had a LIBOR influence in the last 22 years is subject to going back to 18 U.S.C., Section 3771 and other related criminal code. And when I first was hearing about this, uh, a friend of mine, um, Carlos Cato, has a uh, financial fraud company there in Virginia. And he'd been heavy research with this and helping me formulate a lot of my information. But right in the criminal code, it's set for people to have protections under 3771, as well as the criminal code answers full restitution, which means if we're talking about a mortgage, you get all your money back that you put into the property uh, or the loan transaction. The balance of the loan gets completely expunged from county records. Let me be sure, let me see if I understand this correctly. You're saying there's full restitution 
on your mortgage. Do you mean there's full restitution on the parts you were overpaid or the part that you overpaid in terms of artificially high interest rates imposed by labor? Or are you saying that there's full restitution if you had a mortgage for a quarter million dollars, the restitution includes the full quarter million dollars? Exactly. <clears throat> if you would reference 18 U.S.C. Section 470, what it's saying there in the related code underneath is that um, counterfeit acts created outside the United States, and it explains it all right there. And so the counterfeit act was the LIBOR manipulation created outside of the United States affecting American people. So my contention is it makes all of these loan transactions counterfeit. Now, where it really gets disgusting is people get their car repossessed or their house foreclosed on. That's called grand theft auto and grand theft real estate because they're using fraudulent documents to take your property. So I hear what you're saying, and you're tapping into something that is an extraordinary argument. I would have to imagine what we're saying here is anybody who's had a student loan may be able to get some of that back. Anybody who's had a mortgage may be able to get some of that back. Anybody who's had a car payment may be able to get some of that back, maybe more than some of it. But we're talking potentially. I mean, I saw one of the examples that you had in your book. And it was just a typical mortgage, and again, you calculated that it might translate into something like $80, $90 a month that people overpaid on their mortgage because of LIBOR. And you're saying over the period of that mortgage, you may be able to recollect that or regain that $80, $90 overpayment, which would translate into something like $30,000 over a period of 30 years on the mortgage. I'm saying that... U.S. code in the criminal side says you get all your money back, and whatever you had borrowed gets expunged from county records as if it never existed. Now, when I'm telling Melody the other day, I the book's only about half done, and what I shared with some folks was my research so far to get them to follow along because I quite frankly didn't believe what I was reading either and what Mr. Cato was telling me that he'd been researching. But, you see, the bank guys want to keep things on the civil side. They don't want to talk about the criminal. So, but you look in the criminal side and everything that's been been going on internationally for 22 years is a crime. And you'll see in the middle part of the book it points it out very clearly and it's information that I've researched. I didn't just come up with these ideas. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's a number of court cases that I've reviewed. <clears throat> now, I was telling Melody about this the other day. Everybody that had an adjustable rate mortgage, there's typically the first part of the month when the reset date comes up. Now, it must be just <clears throat> an accident but between 2000 and 2009, so that 10-year period, the LIBOR rate spiked one day almost seven basis points and then went back down the next day. And guess which day it spiked up? The day they calculate uh, the adjustable rate mortgages. There you go. 
Yeah. <clears throat> and some of the testimony. What are the odds, huh? Yeah, what are the odds? It's just like a 10-year oddity there. <clears throat> so also in the testimony, um, I'm not sure if it was from Credit Suisse or Barclays, but it was common practice. And part of my book is the quotes from the law or the uh, trial. That's what these guys did, and they were just expected to do it. So <laughs> you look at the criminal side of it, then, well, you guys are totally on point with the entire system. But <clears throat> since, what, Rothschild in the 1600s or 1700s, started promoting the fractional reserve banking and so forth. Then the Nixon administration topped it off in 1971 by <clears throat> unpegging the gold standard. Well, money can be created so rapidly for anything, but if that ain't going to do a quick enough job, they created the derivatives. And there's not enough money on earth to cover all the derivatives that's out there from all countries combined. <laughs> so... I think the financial system is um, very tenuous, and if I can prove these things, which Mr. Cato has helped me fill out complaints, which I've sent to the governor, the attorney general, uh, AG uh, Holder, um, the county uh, attorneys, uh, I can figure that everybody I put on notice with a certified mail complaint. And my challenge is is to get um, their attention. I mean, it sounds so massive, nobody would believe it. A friend of mine here in Denver is a uh, an attorney and a professor of uh, real estate law here at the university. And so he's on board with helping us get research and get some attention because I'm thinking if we can help a lot of people see what's available, <clears throat> at least when the entire financial system collapses, you'd just be a little better off, even though your greenbacks wouldn't be worth anything, but just you keep your house. And then if you get restitution back, call Melody as quick as you can and put it into something you can keep. <laughs> you know, it's just, you just can't make this stuff up. Now this is a this is an extraordinary claim. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, so far, have there been any successful applications of this theory? You're applying it right now in your own life for your own loans and whatever. You're going through you're going through the process right now. But if I understand correctly, you have not yet had a success. Has anyone had a success or even a, or a failure on this so far, or is it just just at the beginning? Well, it's actually both. Um, Mr. Cato's company uh, counsels people and prepares complaints. Uh, and I know you're not going to believe this, uh, Melody and Al, but uh, <laughs> there's been over 60 um, wins for individual people using the, this complaint mechanism. But the condition is they have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So I yep. can't find out the details about those. See? So <clears throat> Mr. Cato's group has, uh, they're right there in Fredericksburg, Virginia. 
And when the new Congress uh, came in, he and his associates spent a few days down on Capitol Hill talking about this um, and attended hearings about this. And if I heard Carlos mention one of the at one of the hearings, a uh, leader of the finance committee just looked at him and he said, well, what do you want me to do about this? And he said, well, you know, you guys were elected to fix this stuff. We're just bringing it up. I'm surprised that here on Capitol Hill you haven't heard about this because the FBI is here and so is the Department of Justice, and all you need to do is pick up the phone and make a call. And they indeed did that to check out their story. And they were panicked when they called back. Said, you're right. Now, there's another section of the code that's kind of interesting, 18 U.S.C. Section 4. <clears throat> what it says there, this is called misprison of a felony. So if you're aware of a felony, you have a duty to report it either to a judicial um, authority or to a military authority. <laughs> I get now, what you're saying here, which means by bringing that subject up, in relationship to some bank manager or bank official who is perhaps responsible for you losing uh, some amount of money, all of a sudden we have a wonderful incentive for him to say, you know, why don't we write you a check and you just go away? Well, maybe Al, those other cases were won that way. I just don't know yet. But the governor knows now because I, I sent him certified mail and I know he got it. And so is the attorney general. So... With 18 U.S.C. 4, um, they're talking about, I think, up to three years in jail and a fine. And guess what? If you're a lawyer, I think you're going to have trouble with your bar card. Yeah. If you're convicted of a felony, you're out. So, but anyway, there's a lot more research I need to do. and and uh, But I really think that through the uh, financial fraud consultants there, Mr. Carlos uh, Cato's company, and the work we're jointly doing, that we certainly have uh, a reason to finish the book, let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a break for some commercials, and we will be right back with Rob West and uh, some extraordinary information. I'm here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Please stay tuned. will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. 
Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Cedarstrom, I'm here with Alfred Addisk and Rob West, who's in the process of writing The Banker's Web, and it's about the LIBAR interest rate fixing scandal, and Rob, it really amazes me, and you know, I can't wait until your book is complete and you're able to finish your investigation, and um, I'm sure as you go along, it's just mind-boggling, the things that haven't come to the attention of anyone. And they've just pushed this on the rug. We know little Timmy Geithner was well aware of the rigging. Um, so the powers to be knew it was going on. And, I mean, you would think that all these loans, all these bonds, all these contracts should just be null and void. Well, that's that's what the criminal code of the United States said. I didn't say it. I just looked it up after having uh, quite a bit of coaching from Carlos. And, uh, you know, there's a chronology of things that uh, you're so good with discussing, Melody, that, you know, if we just go back to 71 and the gold standards removed, then 99 is an interesting year because of the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. 2005, many people just have no clue, but for some reason, things are going well back then and uh, you know Falgamir get a loan you know and the securitization process of all these loans Wall Street wanted more and more and more of them so they can make more and more securities and with Glass-Steagall gone you know they had a completely green light but in 2005 I don't know who really did this yet but the uh, changes in the um, bankruptcy chapter 7 filing occurred mm-hmm. now why do you suppose when things were going so well that they changed the BK7 rules to make it more difficult to file a 7 which mm-hmm. is a complete dismissal of debt and I believe it's because the banking system knew what they were creating and they keep you hanging on with your fingernails going down the chalkboard 
that was one way they could do that. And, of course, 2007, 2008 was the years of the debacle. And uh, so now we're cresting in to 2015, which I believe is going to be a very pivotal year. And if I can move this book along, and uh, you remember Sherry Peterson, she's been quite encouraging Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do this book. And she introduced me to a professional book coach here in Denver, uh, named Polly Zapofsky, and uh, she's a she gives me a lot of encouragement as well. And he wouldn't know this unless he read her book or he found out some other way. But she was the first woman to walk around the world on feet, on her feet. So, um, but anyway, all these things are going on, and when you put them all together, and this isn't a theory. This is just exactly what happened. The bankers have continuously manipulated the entire financial system so badly that we need to help people get back in control and get control of their financial life and hopefully pick up gold and silver and things that can just explode in purchasing power. Um, and you know, I've been talking about this for a long, long time. Uh, even way back uh, before I got to know Melody, I've been introduced on the phone a lot with Bob Chapman, <clears throat> and everybody just waiting for the next shoe to drop, but it hasn't dropped yet. <laughs> yep. Much to our amazement. Yeah, and uh-huh. I just don't want people to become so complacent, you know. I mean, it's easy to do when you're expecting something and it never shows up, but uh, these things are just not going to be ignored. I just don't think so. Is there a time constraint? Is anything happening where the opportunity to make claims on the excess interest that you may have paid over the last 22 years, is there a time constraint where time is running out, a statute of limitations or change in the law or something like that? Do people need to move quickly on this, or can they kind of take their time and study it and, and uh, you know, understand it a little more clearly? two things. One, I believe my understanding of um, when a fraud is discovered, you have up to three years to prosecute after that. Two, um, I I don't think there's a whole lot of time left, but even if Congress went back and changed all the laws that made everything I found not valid, it would only be invalidated from points going forward, not what happened in the last 22 years. So uh, I think that people really need to look into this, and we can make some assessments, you know, car loans, credit cards, uh, vehicle loans, airplane loans, student loans, uh, mortgages, of course. But see, it's just been so massive and going on for so long, I don't believe there's any way that an individual situation can be litigated. And if you look at the criminal code side, instead of uh, uh, the civil side, see, have you ever heard of a person stumbling into a sheriff's station and they've got two knives sticking out of their back? And they said, well, we'd like to help you, but we can't until you get an attorney and file a complaint. Well, see, the criminal side doesn't work that way. When you notify of a potential problem on the criminal side, then the authorities, FBI, 
and because I'm talking about federal crimes here, they need to investigate what you're alleging to see if you might have a claim. And during the period of this investigation, if they decide you do, you then fall under the protection of the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And you can go right on the FBI's website and read that, and it also <laughs> includes financial and emotional crimes. And I've got some local guys here telling me, well, I was down at the Sheriff's Department last week, said, well, see, it's not in our brochure. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not sure, but I think the Fed guys trump you. And if it's not in your brochure, I think you might have a problem with that. It's just nobody's pointed it out. What do you mean it's so, not in your brochure? You mean that if you take your complaint to local local or state authorities, they'll say, well, this isn't something we enforce. And is that what we're, we're saying right now? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> because in their world, a financial crime like that doesn't seem to be in their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, well, you know, the federal guys, it's in their jurisdiction. So... <clears throat> And they've already proved that it's a crime because there have been six convictions. Exactly. Right? There have been six banks that have been found guilty. So we know at the federal level, we know that a crime has been taken place. This is not just your theory. It's not just your conjecture. The government says, yep, this is criminal. Exactly. And you're saying you can use that and you can leverage those previous decisions by the federal courts to perhaps move federal courts again, or perhaps move state and local courts. Is that true? Well, if we can continue down the line, uh, getting the criminal support from the code, I don't think this matter has to be a matter of litigation at all. I get that. Yeah. I get that. But the question is, who will enforce? Does it have to be federal? Could it be state or local? Well, I don't remember the citation, but there's another section of the code uh, two of them might be kind of interesting for you. <clears throat> One is that uh, from the president's position in the White House on down, he can delegate authority down to a local level to take care of the remedy for the claim. So that means probably your township trustee can set aside your mortgage. See? We don't need to have everybody all alarmed about this. So, and, and this can be done on an administrative basis rather than a judicial basis. Well, I don't know. I'm right at the point uh-huh. right now that okay. I've sent out so many things certified mail that I put these people on notice, but I still don't believe they're getting my attention, or I'm not getting their attention. And I told I was in with another friend the other week in with a county attorney in their courthouse. He said, well, what do you think the problem is? And I said, well, right downstairs where you have all these deeds and notes filed and all that, he said, I think they're all counterfeit. Doesn't that bother you at your local level? See? He said, well, that's just out of my jurisdiction, you know. So I understand. It's not my yub. You know. <laughs> Freddie Prince. we got Freddie Prince in the uh, prosecutor's office. He's not my yub. <laughs> and I'm Let me ask you this, this Rob. Yep. Is your although your book is not yet completed, is any of your preliminary information available to people and how do they get it if it is? 
if I would like to have what you're seeing right now, which is what I call the author's edition, uh, and just initially on the research with LIBOR, there's going to be other things later. But, yes, they can either connect with Melody or they can reach out to me by email, and uh, rob at rmeadvisors.com would be a good email address for that. <clears throat> and I'd be happy to send that along because we need to have as much notice of what's going on. And, you know, I'm even going back taking a college course on social media because more and more people need to know this. They have no idea they're getting their property sold. They have no idea they're overpaying. And they're going to wonder why they don't have any money at retirement. So. Huh. They're going to wonder sooner than that. A lot of them are going to get that that moment of wonder will hit long before they get to retirement because I don't think it's too far in the future for any of us. There you go. At least probably yeah. not the target audience of my book. So, But, uh, yeah, Melody can share my email address if, if, like, if she would like, and uh, I can pass some things along for further reading. And periodically Mr. Cato and I have conference calls and if someone has an interest, I'll uh, let them know our schedule and a call-in uh, line, so that uh, you know individual questions you know, can be answered uh, in a group form, actually. So, but it's been great, Melody and Al. Thank you so much. Well, we've got a couple more minutes here. We're not going to turn you loose just yet. <laughs> Can't go, <laughs> Rob. <laughs> it's a nice try, but you're not escaping. You got another. You got a. You got to do another three minutes here, Rob, before we let you go. You understand? <laughs> Just like going to jail or something like that, we're not going to let you out until it's time is served. So you get another three minutes or thereabouts. Um, why don't you give folks, if you'd like, why don't you give folks your email right now, where if they are interested in getting a copy of the book, no obligation, no cost, then the book has its stance. It's preliminary. It's not finished. But if you wanted to get right. a copy. Where would they, what email would they use? Rob, my first name, R-O-B, at rmeadvisors.com. That's for Rocky Mountain Educational Advisors.com. Okay. Or they can also contact me, and we'll we'll make sure that uh, we get them over sure. to you, Rob, in order for uh, the information to be sent out. I just got a really quick question. You. You know, you, we all say all the time, there isn't anything we can do. We just have to wait. There isn't anything we can do. There isn't anything we can do. But with those proven convictions and with what you um, imply to where, I mean, this could really open the book to exposing our financial system and the problems. I mean, is that too far-fetched? or Not at all, and I think people... You know, they owe it to themselves to investigate what I'm finding. And Carlos and I have great conversations about all this all the time. But <clears throat> when this system uh, goes backwards, you know, it's it's going to be a tough one. And uh, at least this way, get yourself engaged and become a student yourself and don't rely on 6 o'clock news and, yeah. You know, just all that kind of stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'd be happy to uh, share anything that I know about that on an organized basis. And uh, we can make it a topic for 
other discussions as my research uh, continues. So that'd be great. Well, I hope you come back on the program once again, Rob. I hope you'll be our I, guest. I I would appreciate that, and thanks so much for the invite. All righty, thank you, Rob. Good talking yeah. to you, Rob. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, Melody, it what really do you think? Is, It really is interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, it always boggles, I mean, it boggles the mind. mind. Like, yep. It boggles the mind at how big this is, and it just didn't get the crowd. the mind that there might be a way of getting back at it. Mm-hmm. That's what boggles the mind. I'm not particularly astonished that the bankers of the world have pulled a stunt to rob the people. That doesn't amaze me. But is it possible that there's a knowledge strategy where we could get some of that money back? That's what boggles the mind. We'll find out more from Rob in the future. Right now, Melody and I are out of time. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye. All day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me.
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Radio program archives 
and our mailing address at our blog, which is simply prophecyhour.com. And remember, folks, we are a national satellite radio program. We are on uh, as well as live on the net and podcasts and so on and so forth. Those things cost. Uh, and so I ask that you would pray about supporting airtime because it does cost. Nothing is for free. Our program archives can be found at prophecyhour.com and branch.automatic.com, both of which uh, prophecyhour.com is 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 cheap, but branch.automatic.com that costs. In fact, um, I have filled up all of my space over there, and I'm looking for sponsors to help pay for more space. Otherwise, I'm going to have to delete some programs over there. And right now, which I have already had to do, there's over 500 programs over there right now, and I've only got space for a few more. So pray about supporting brandstoppodomatic.com. I know most, a lot of you people listen from there because it, as like PropCR.com, um, is smartphone-friendly. But the archives that are at prophecyhour.com are the branch.podomatic.com, uh, if that makes any sense to you. They're in-time radio archives. Just pray about supporting airtime and the radio archives so we don't have to delete any programs. Anyway, now a prayer will bring on tonight's guest. Oh, and I want to apologize to you for uh, my earlier program was a rerun, but that was because I, I had on my end some technical difficulties, but they seem to be solved now. Now a prayer. We'll bring on tonight's guest. Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name I pray, Father, I pray that radio goes tonight according to your will and not my will, for I can do nothing. You can do everything, and you know how to do everything. I don't know how to do anything. So, Father, I pray that you give me the words that I need tonight, and you give our guest words in which he needs tonight. So please also give everybody out there ears and wish to hear the truth. So please, Father, in your son's name, Yeshua HaMashiach, please bless this program tonight. Amen and amen. Well, tonight's guest really has been on with us many times. Um, I keep bringing back because so many of you people like to hear him. him. And, yeah, as I said before, he's an Army veteran, and he served his country in Korea. In 1976, he became the first foreigner in Korea to win a Korean title, Taekwondo middleweight champion. So I guess maybe we better not mess with this guy. What do you think, folks? Anyway, living what he called an unrestrained lifestyle after his discharge from the Army, at some point he moved to Oklahoma, and that's where he basically met God. You know, I met a lot of people that that met the father in Oklahoma, and if you ever go down to Oklahoma, drive through it, there is churches everywhere you look, and there's a lot of uh, really religious people over there, but you know, there's also some of Satan's people over there, too, because as you heard them trying to put weird things up in the Capitol, pray for them. Anyway, uh, he's traveled the country as an evangelist, and there's a lot more to the story, but you can check that out at surewordofprophecy.org. That's surewordofprophecy.org. And, of course, after this program goes to archives, there will be a link to uh, his program and to his website in the archives. Okay. Now let's get him on. Welcome, Steve Henderson. Are you with me, Steve? Grace to you, Pastor Dan, and I must say I'm quite relieved to hear your voice. <laughs> uh, did Frank tell you that maybe you was going on by yourself? <laughs> I was getting a little nervous there for a while. But, uh, <laughs> folks, folks, we pulled a string. <clears throat> Steve, if I couldn't have got, been able to talk to you tonight and be the host because of my technical difficulties, Steve was going to do the program all by himself. <clears throat> and so we pulled his string when he called him. Anyway, 
Well, I'm so glad to have you on with me, Steve, and I appreciate your effort, even though you didn't have to do anything. <laughs> that makes two of us, brother, where two or more agree on something, right? Uh, right. I'm very thankful to to, uh, to be here with you, and uh, not by myself. And I must say, uh, that's quite a relief. Well, uh, uh, so I'm uh, very thankful that you have put me here in this spot today uh, to share a little bit with you of my heart of some of the amazing things that I see that are uh, transpiring and shaping up in the Can poetic uh, arena. Can I ask you a question first, Steve? Steve, sure. can I ask you a question first? I sent you yes. a picture earlier, and uh, that was of Obama and the, the finger in the air. What do you? What do you? Can you tell the folks what that was, and uh, or maybe your opinion on that? <laughs> well, I think you ought to send an article out to everyone, brother. I, I had always felt and have seen a lot of evidence to that that effect that that uh, Obama, I think, is a, quite a bit sympathetic toward uh, the Islamic, uh, you know, adherence, and uh, you know that sign that you showed me, the, the picture that you showed me of all those Islamists uh, in their meetings uh, and uh, radicals with their fingers pointed up in the air. And as uh, Obama was in that particular meeting, where was that, in Africa? Yeah, it was in Africa at a leader's Africa. meeting, I think it was. Same exact sign as he's walking through the leadership of the Af one of those African countries. Quite shocking. Um, and I, I, I think that if you put a, a black robe on, on, on Obama, you, he would have looked exactly the same as everyone else uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> Run, run around being a terrorist. So I don't um, want to, you know, I don't want to talk bad against uh, leadership in the country. I think that, you know, but I do, I do often question the motives and intent of this administration, uh, especially we're get, we're getting in a deeper and deeper hole, and I think it's evidence is of what has happened this week. In fact, and that's what I hope to share with you a little bit about that. Um, well, I'm gonna. I'm going to let you talk. I just want to say one more thing about it. Folks, what we're talking about is there's a report from the Jerry Golden, I think it's jerrygolden.com, but I'll repost it on my website. But it is a picture of, of Obama um, giving um, the sign that's most predominantly, people call it, the ISIS sign of one finger in the air, along with some other pictures that will prove you can see it wasn't an accident. And, you know, it's not a down. It's just presenting evidence. You judge for yourself what you think it means, if it means anything. Uh, but I will – there will be a – at ProphecyHour.com after the program, um, I will put a link up to it again and, uh, so you can see it. But now let's hear what Steve's got to say. He's got a lot to say about um, Iran and Israel, and let's go back to Steve. Steve? Yes, brother, I've uh, entitled this uh, little talk to the prophetic showdown, Israel, the West, and Iran. I'm uh, very, very deeply concerned, uh, mainly because of my study of prophecy and the signs uh, that, that uh, I've, I've been seriously examining for you know, a couple of de decades or so, and uh, especially concerning the, the book of Daniel. And I have been uh, watching this one particular prophecy uh, generate into a, uh, I mean, just right in your face thing now. And and uh, it's, there's no doubt that, you know, one of the strangest and most perplexing scenarios that the world has ever witnessed since World War II is a rapidly turning into one of the largest global concerns, many of which believe that you, know, you can quickly pull the plug on world peace 
and change the nature of almost everything, you know, and destabilizing uh, normalcy and world markets and drag the nations into a showdown of epidemic proportions. And and we all know that, you know, the things that are going on, Scripture, scripture backs them up and has a lot to say about it. Uh, before the Messiah returns back to gather his elect, we recognize that conditions on this planet are go- that they're going to go from bad to worse, and and you should refer to it as birth pangs. And I think the last time I spoke on your program, Pastor Diana, I spoke of several different interventions and visitations, one of which, for the believers of Yeshua, is an absolute ecstatic experience, but uh, for the others, a most frightening, teeth-gnashing day, and we're the unaware that the deceived and the scoffers will be hollering for the rocks in the mountains to fall, fall upon them. <clears throat> but I'm thankful, brother, for the prophetic word that uh, tells us to watch, and those who are watching will not be caught off guard. And so Yeshua gave us signs to look out for when he, he said, the, "When these things happen, then look up your head and lift, you know, and, and, and be proud that you know I'm coming. I'm, I'm at the door." And, and brother, these signs are, are meant to be read. Signs are used for warnings. They tell us what's up ahead. They warn us of any changes which will that are impending. Uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to make preparations when we see these signs beforehand. And what good is a sign if you never look at it? And, you know, if you run down the road at 70 miles an hour, be thankful that the sign which warns you that the bridge is out ahead uh, is, is there, you know. It helps you to focus and be alert for any changes that may keep you safe. And I will have to admit, <laughs> I haven't always paid attention to the road signs myself or any signs that, <laughs> I'm going to make a, a confession to you, brother. I just uh, yesterday a state trooper pulled me over. Uh, the sign said speed limit 45 miles an hour, and I was caught going 53. <laughs> and uh, the trooper well, you're not was, as bad as my wife. I'm yeah. sorry. I said you're not as bad as my great, wife. Man. She speed limit okay. should be obeyed. She uh, I, I yeah. have to comment. Uh, she uh, she gets 80 miles an hour. And gets stopped in a sixty mile an hour zone, and she never gets a ticket. You tell me about that one. Yeah, well, you know what the devil does. You know he's at, it. It doesn't matter. Just go one one little. Just crack open the door, brother. You know. Well, yeah. the trooper blessed me with grace and, and just gave me a warning. Thank thank uh, Yahweh for that. Uh, but yes, there are consequences in ignoring the signs and, and not paying attention to them. Uh, so. We, you know, we need to look at uh, what what we're to see down the road ahead to what is coming to prepare ourselves and, and for the end of the age. And Yeshua gave us uh, a lot of those signs. and uh, So we need to watch out and keep our ears open for the possibilities coming down about certain things. And he, uh, one of the signs that he spoke uh, specifically about was uh, hearing about wars. And uh, he said, you hear a lot of, you know, a lot about the countries threatening one another. And, you know, just this week, uh, I'm amazed at how many times I've have seen uh, countries threatening one another. And it's not, you know, just talking about the the uh, Israeli uh, headlines this week, but you're talking about other uh, headlines, such as uh, the one here that I'm reading. Kim Jong-un reportedly tells North Korean Army to prepare for war with the U.S., uh, and this article says that uh, the North Korean leader reportedly told the army to prepare for war with the United States and his allies. And uh, the, he said the prevailing situation where a great war for national reunification is at hand requires all the Korean People's Army 
units to become guards units totally prepared for war politically and ideologically in military technique and materially. Uh, and this was according to the Korean Central News Agency. He told the Army to train to tear the pieces, the stars, and the stripes. How about this one? Russia pushes reset button, praise missile threatening to blow up Obama. Uh, I saw this picture uh, in this article, and it said that Russians freighted a missile on Army Day marked to be personally delivered to Obama. I saw the picture which showed a parade in Russia showcasing a missile with Obama's name on it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of these these uh, wars and rumors of wars and talk um, uh, going on uh, a headline like this. Threat of war between Ukraine and Russia. How about this eye-opening article? Did Vladimir Putin just casually threaten nuclear war? No wonder states are reacting so harshly one to another. Here's, here's one that's pretty much in your face. Western threats against Russia increase danger of nuclear war. And in this uh, particular article, it says this. Germany is already leading the buildup of NATO forces in Eastern Europe. On Thursday, four German Eurofighters jets were moved to the Amer American base, or the America base in Estonia. In this article, the Austrian correspondents for the London-based publication Financial Times and Economist, Eric Fry writes, Negotiations with Putin are currently pointless because he lies in the face of every negotiating partner he must somehow be made aware that he has miscalculated that the West will not accept this aggression. Only then is there a possibility to talk. <clears throat> this will probably only take place with a further intensification of the sanctions, including the breaking of all, off, all economic relations with Moscow, as well as a direct military aid to Kiev and Western exports, the stationing of NATO troops in Ukraine, and even U.S. airstrikes against separatist positions and Russian supply lines. All of these options should be on the table at present. Fry knows that his options, which doubtless reflect plans that are being readied behind the scenes by NATO and the Western powers, could provoke a nuclear war. How about this one? Japan's war threat to North Korea. This was just uh, recently in the Daily Mail. It says a crisis was brewing in the I'm sorry. A crisis was brewing in the Far East yesterday as Japan threatened a military strike on North Korea. It fears that it has embarked on a nuclear weapons program, which has proved to be correct. With North Korea warning it could strike U.S. targets anywhere in the world, Japan's defense minister, and I'm not even going to try to name his name here, Mr. Ishiba, said it was ready to carry out preemptive strike with ballistic missiles. The war of words came a day after U.S. intelligence chiefs said North Korea probably had missiles capable of attacking America's west coast as well as one or two nuclear weapons. This is just a, a recent article. So, and we know, we've known that North, North Korea has had nukes for a while, but friends, you know, if, if there's not threats, war has been birthed by the threats, and war is a consequence of the threat. And Yeshua told us about concerning signs. You'll hear wars and rumors of war, but see that you're not troubled, for the end is not yet. And I think a good majority of the world, Pastor Down, knows that, that something decisive is coming down. And, you know, we know that the scriptures talk about a coming conflict that's going to involve countries such as uh, uh, Russia and Persia. And, and, you know, look at Ezekiel chapter 8, and I'll read a little bit of that. 
uh, just to remind the audience that we're heading toward that time pretty rapidly. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, in the 16th verse and onward, says this, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be an earthquake, a greater quake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountain shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord. Every sword, every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Pastor Dan, it's very obvious that these events, threats, and wars that are now going on, leading and intending for Yahweh to show himself among the nations that he is in fact in charge and will intervene as Israel's God, which will bring these nations back to Israel's mountains. And as we speak, there are a lot of connections being uh, put together with Iran and China and and Russia, and, and it's very possible that we are taking a look at, at the rumors of wars, which will eventually, according to Yeshua, uh, are going to turn into a full-blown-out war that's going to lead to the battle of Armageddon. What do you think? Let, good. You let me talk a minute. Um, let, let's go with this. You know, um, we have Armageddon. That's the Valley of Megadigo, right? Mm-hmm. Basically. that's uh, Anyway, that's where yeah. the, the battle of Armageddon will be fought. Uh, it identifies it in the Bible. Okay, now let's go with this. ISIS, and uh, they consider them to be an instrument of the apocalypse, as does Iran, but I'm going to focus on ISIS for a minute. ISIS right now believes their whole goal isn't that they don't think they can defeat the world, and really neither does Iran. That's not their point. Their point on both cases are wanting to draw the Western world, basically Rome, as they call it. They want to draw them into a battle in a specific in a specific place, uh, and I have it posted on my, my website. But point is to another specific uh, battle, a specific valley, that they want to draw us into, and they believe that when we enter into that battle with them in that specific place, then their Savior will come back, and save them. And that's yeah. what they are trying to take us to. Back to you. Absolutely. And uh, the, 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 the adversaries and the terrorists are being put in place. Anytime a great nation got ready to, to, to be brought down by Yahweh, uh, there will be a lot of stirring up of, uh, of a lot of these different terrorist um, organizations that will come around and, and bring down the, the big bully. And I think that a lot of people look at uh, in the in the Mid East uh, as as uh, America being the great Satan. Apparently, uh, Iran is called that out in the open, and then the Israel, the little Satan. But it's very obvious to me that that the attention of the world is being brought down right back 
to this place called Israel because he is the Elohim of Israel, and he's going all these nations down in that direction here pretty soon. And all roads, I heard the, the King of Jordan in one of his interviews with CNN the other night, that all roads lead to Jerusalem, and that's another yeah. issue which we can speak about later. But it's very clear that ISIS has made uh, declarations that they're they're heading that way. Uh, and well, Steve, so, I need to I need to break in. We're going to go to break sure. here in less than a minute. So why don't you give your website, and then we'll come back and talk. Uh, SherwoodProphecy.org, and I've been trying to keep up with the prophetic news and in regard to some of the things I'm speaking with. Uh, check it out. It'll keep you informed. Yeah, folks, he does a pretty good job. Go over there and check out his site. He's got some past presentations and some prophetic teachings, and he's got a lot of things over there. So go over there at SureWord, uh, Prophecy, uh, SherwoodProphecy.org. Uh, of course, there will be a link to it wherever you find the archives uh, after this program at our website. So Go over and check him out, and we'll be back in three minutes. Don't go away. Pastor Dan will be right back. things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, AVR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people. 
your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need, first aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 
at 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682, or 316-619-4886 if you need. But go over there at ProfCR.com. You can donate online very easily, and it's got our mailing address. So pray about it. Anyway, we're now back talking with Steve Henderson. Are you still with me, Steve? I'm here, brother. And again, uh, thank you for your ministry. I think that would, that is a model for any of us to, to be compassionate workers, uh, not only to uh, sow seeds of, of truth, but to uh, live that truth out in our life to bless others with our um, our little bit that we have to, to give a cup of cold water to little ones and to uh, help help the poor and the afflicted. Uh, God's heart is right there with you, brother. And thank you for your ministry. Well, amen. Thank you. But, you know, we're we're just so thankful that after, you know, for who we are before we got saved, that we're allowed to serve him. And, you know, I told the father before, you give me a broom, I'll sweep up the kingdom of heaven. Anything I can do to serve you, father, in your son's name, man, I'll do it. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just being a servant. Anyway, uh, speaking of servants, you're in really informing us about some things tonight, so why don't you continue on? Thank you, brother. I am really excited. I guess that would be the word. I'm excited uh, because the final events that usher in the, the Lord Yeshua's uh, return are here in our face. And uh, as I've been studying the signs and the prophecies for, for quite a long time, uh, I recognize that at the end, uh, the players that I wanted to speak about this evening, of course, Israel is the the issue. Uh, that was the issue in the Bible because those were Jewish prophets and Jewish prophecies, and it did write about certain countries. And what I find is interesting is that uh, one of the prophecies in in the book of Daniel is very seldom mentioned, but it talks about this goat that comes across the surface of the whole earth from the west with a great nation leading the way, the great nation being a great horn. And uh, I, it's my understanding, and it has been that way for a long, long time, that this great nation that comes across the surface of the whole earth from the west must be the United States, because I don't know of a great nation that comes across the surface of the earth and are known as the west. Uh, and I think at the end, we would recognize clear the prophecies. Of course, uh, in, in the historical application of that, most people applied that prophecy of Daniel 8 to Alexander the Great, how he swiftly came across and conquered the Medes and Persians. And that was a fact of history. I will admit that. Everyone knows that. They'll do just a very little bit of study. But when Gabriel says this is an end-time vision, and he and he points it and connects it with the indignation at the end, at the point in time. And then he speaks about at the end of this conflict between the West and this ram, which one of the one of the uh, the countries that's mentioned in this particular uh, prophecy is Persia. And we all recognize that Persia has been and always will be the Iranians. And then the Medes are also mentioned there, but uh, when Daniel was writing the book, uh, Darius the Mede had taken over, and, and the Medes had succeeded Babylon, which is a territory of what we would call today Iraq. Now, if you take the Medes and Persians and you put them at the end of time like Gabriel did, you will find that the, the great majority of the property that we're talking about 
is Iran and Iraq, and it, which had also encompassed a little bit of the, the, the eastern part of Assyria at that time. And when the invasion came down from the Medes and Persians, they came down from those areas and then encompassed uh, Babylon at the time, which is the modern-day Iraq. So <clears throat> I'm looking, I have been looking for the war between the West and this great nation and the Medes and Persians. In fact, there's a geographical location that's specifically mentioned, so I don't have to guess at where this is. It's over at the Ulai River, the Karun River, right as you go into the, the, uh, the, Strait, of Hormu- the uh, Strait of Hormuz, there's a tributary, the Alak, uh, uh, Oxa, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, well, I'm trying to think of the name of it right now, but uh, there's a waterway that goes into the Persian Gulf that uh, shot all our waterway, my apologies. And uh, right, it's right there where he sees this ram, and, and there's two horns on this ram. Uh, the, the focus means that there's one one on the focus first, and then eventually the higher horn or the greater nation comes in after the fact, and then these nations get together. And then they begin to push and bully. Well, you know, back when I began to start looking at these prophecies, there was just no way that Iran and Iraq would ever get together because that eight-year war they fought in, in, on a, on, in, during, in that area, as a matter of fact. It was over that waterway. And whoever gains that waterway down there will gain control of the, the, of the uh, oil that goes in and out of the Middle East. So they fought an eight-year war there between Saddam and, and Iran. And, and then Saddam went back in there in 1991, and, of course, the West came over with a coalition of nations and pushed Saddam back uh, where he belonged, out of Kuwait. But that wasn't the end of it. Of course, uh, Saddam had, uh, had thrown a 40-plus Scud missiles into Israel, trying to get them into, involved with it. And when you look at these prophecies that talk about the Medes and Persians in the West and the great nation that lead in the West, the coalition from the West, uh, and Gabriel put it at the end of time, uh, it kind of makes you makes you think a little bit. And uh, so, as the news has begun to progress, as I've been looking at this news for years and years and years, 2001 came and the. The World Trade Center uh, was bombed, and, uh, of course, Bush blamed uh, uh, originally uh, Saddam Hussein and then mentioned Iran, uh, Iraq, and uh, North Korea as axes of the evil. Uh, And from there, I've been watching this for years and years, and now we're at the place now where here Mr. Netanyahu stands up this week before Congress, and he, he came over. And, and was compelled to, to give a message to the United States Congress. Uh, and, and I believe that this is a sign. I believe there's something going on here that we need to be paying, paying close attention to. And the great majority and all of the, the focus of his speech was on the nation of Iran. And we all know that right now there's been a lot of negotiations with the P5 plus 1 group uh, in various locations trying to get Iran to to uh, not to develop a nuclear weapon, because they recognize that if that happens, first of all, uh, Iran is openly calling for the annihilation of Israel on a constant basis. Uh, I just read an article just yesterday uh, to that effect, again, uh, from the, um, the prime, not prime minister, but one of the ministry spokesman, uh, Zarif, he uh, said that, yes, uh, he in fact admitted that uh, we they were wanting to annihilate the Netanyahu administration, 
which, of course, if you do that, you're, he said, we're not that we're going to annihilate Israel, but we want to take out Netanyahu. Well, we all know what that means. Uh, of course, uh, Ahmadinejad and uh, and uh, others have said, in fact, all the way back in 1992, uh, the, uh, the leader of state there in Iran said, if we ever get a nuclear bomb, we will use it on, on, on uh, Israel. And so... They have this hidden agenda. They're 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 doing this nuclear program under mountains, you know. There ought to be a clue to someone. And the IAEA is saying, well, they're not uh, all the way transparent on a nuclear program. And they have all of these centrifuges. In fact, they were talking about needing 190,000 centrifuges. Um, and this this deal that they're trying to set with the West and and the other uh, nations and the, and all the world's getting involved with this. This is not just a the United States thing or an Israel thing, uh, you're, you're talking about Russia and, and, and other uh, groups that are involved with this uh, negotiation uh, to try to get Iran, even though Russia is supporting the, the uh, which I think is pretty two-faced, uh, Russia and Iran are friends, and Russia has contributed quite a bit to their nuclear program. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Well, I do know what Ezekiel says, and also recognize what Daniel says, that one day there is going to be a war between the West and and Iran and Iraq, they're in that area, right there at that waterway, uh, the Karun River, and it's specifically mentioned. So I don't have to guess or try to metaphor uh, this situation. There is going to be a war that will will be so large that once once that war happens and Iran and Iraq are going to be broken down, then that great nation is going to break. And I, I, I could go on for quite a bit about what I feel about how this nation is going to break, if, if nothing else, uh, financially, uh, we're in big, big trouble. And I think that just one more major event is going to push us over the edge. But when this great nation breaks, then it's going to go up into four, uh, four different uh, entities toward the four winds. It's going to affect the whole world, brother. And uh, you know if this great nation falls, it is going to affect the whole world. And in the same prophecy of Daniel 8, a little horn comes up. And if you do a study on this little horn, uh, this little horn in Daniel 8 is very clearly the one that is, is uh, involved in, the, in Daniel 7, uh, which it comes out of the four beasts of Daniel 7, out of ten horns. And we know when we look at the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 17, that these ten horns are ten kingdoms will have power beasts for, with, with the beast for one hour and have one mind. So we know this little horn is coming out of ten, so we have recognized this, as Daniel does, as an end-time vision. So... We cannot put that in Alexander the Great's day uh, by no way, shape, or means, but at the end, the book would become unsealed, and, in fact, uh, we would recognize that the very players which are in the world scene are, are, are shouting at one another, uh, threatening wars, and so Netanyahu uh, stands up before the United States, and he gives a, a, a stirring speech to the United States Congress, uh, and not... Um, in favor of the administration, uh, and I think that's quite odd that Obama himself was not even uh, part of that uh, articulation of, of, of the warning that, that Israel had uh, given. I, yeah, well, the thought pattern on that is is simply that you know uh, when we look at Obama's history, we really do see where his sympathy. Here comes my train of that now. Anyway, where his sympathies lie, and it simply do not seem to lie with Israel at all. And he was much acting much like a, a spoiled brat, 
he didn't that didn't want the truth to be told on him. And that's what Netanyahu did. He's, he told, simply told the truth. He didn't down the president. He said he had great respect for the president. But he pointed out that this deal, at the end of 10 years, they will be free to have uh, a nuclear weapon. But wait a second. Here's something that wasn't addressed. Uh, the point is, is that, well, maybe it was. But the point is, is that in the meantime, he's going to be allowed to build all the intercontinental ballistic missiles that he wants, and so that if he does make nuclear weapons, he'll already have the missiles in which to put the warheads on, and folks, they will reach America, and they already have intercontinental ballistic missiles that will reach America, but they say they are for putting satellites in the sky. Back to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and uh, apparently, according to this prophecy, brother, that I've been talking about, Something makes this goat from the West very, very angry, okay? And it's because of that anger he comes across the surface holder from the West and stomps on this ram. And uh, the good news is the ram is going to be broken. Uh, both its horns are broken. And when that happens, that great horn is going to brag a little bit more, and then the prophet sees this great horn breaking before his very eyes. And it affects the four wind, all the way to the four winds. And out of, out of uh, one of those four entities is going to come a little horn uh, who's got a plan and, and, and a device uh, uh, to uh, create a peace on the earth. And uh, we might get into that in another program sometime. But uh, I find it interesting, uh, and here's what Netanyahu said in just a little bit of his uh, speech, I'll quote it. Uh, speaking of Iran, he says, the foremost sponsor of global terrorism could be weeks away from having enough enriched uranium for an entire arsenal of nuclear weapons, and this with full international legitimacy. And by the way, if Iran's incontinental ballistic missile program is not part of the deal, and so far, Iran refuses to even put it on the negotiating table. Well, Iran could have the means to deliver that nuclear arsenal to the far-reached corners of the Earth, including to every part of the United States. And then... He switches it. Uh, he said a whole bunch more about that, but uh, for time constraint, I'm not going to say much about it. But then he concludes with this. But I guarantee you this, he says, the days when the Jewish people remain passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over. We no longer, uh, we are no longer scattered among the nations, powerless to defend ourselves. We restored our sovereignty and our nation's home, and the soldiers who defend our home have boundless courage. And for the first time in 100 generations, we, the Jewish people, can defend ourselves. And this is why, this is why, as President or Prime Minister of Israel, I can promise you one more thing. Even if Israel had to stand alone, Israel will stand. <clears throat> you talk about threats, brother. Uh, there have been many coming out of Iran and uh, out of ISIS, uh, out of Hamas, out of Hezbollah. And by the way, they are Iranian-supported and funded and backed. Uh, right now, there's revolutionary uh, Republican Guard in Syria. Uh, they're in Lebanon, and uh, there are uh, Republican Guard in Gaza as we speak. Uh, uh, the Yemen situation is taking place over there. Are uh, supported and funded, uh, I guess, by uh, Iran. Uh, and the whole Middle East is getting more and more intense because Iran is pushing and bullying its neighbors, and they're in 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.